Welcome to episode five of Military Veterans Podcast, where we talk to veterans to learn about their stories and experiences. And today we are joined by Josh Bodgy. Nailed it. Nailed Cheers it. for that, Gav. Thank no you. Worries. I've been called so many things over the years. You've nailed it. I said your surname correct. You did, yes. Spot on. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Um, now, this, this is the fifth episode, as I've just said, and I thought we'd mix it up a bit. Um, I wanted to try something different that I might use for future episodes. So you're my guinea pig. I hope that's all right. Nice one. Happy to be a guinea pig. Seems to be a guinea pig for everyone at the moment. Great. <laughs> Fantastic. So what, what I'm going to try and ask is just like a, uh, four questions, uh, like a summary, I suppose, of what we're going to go into yep. in more detail. Um, so these questions are, what? Uh, sorry, the questions are, I'll try this again. When did you join? Uh, what service and branch did you join? How long did you serve for and what rank did you get to? Off we go then. Um, so I joined the army in 2004, went into basic training and cap, uh, Royal Engineers cap badge. Um, I spent pretty much my entire career at Nine Parachute Squadron within the Royal Engineers. Um, did 10 years in total before being military discharged. And yeah, when I was discharged, I got to the rank of corporal. Nice, nice. Well... Already, I'm excited to see where this, <laughs> what comes out of this. Um, so let's start at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, as I say, this is your episode. Um, and uh, let's start, where, where did you start life? Where were you born? Where did you grow up? I was born in Portsmouth. Um, yeah, my dad was in the army when I was born. He was at the dive school down there. Um, I think he was one of the instructors at the time. Um, but yeah, sort of. Two, three years old, the old man left the army, joined the police, and uh, we ended up moving to a place called Slough. Um, okay. Sort of grew, spent my my young young years of my life going to school there and growing up there, and um, yeah, sort of stayed there till I was sort of seventeen and decided I was going to leave. Well, wasn't decided I was going to leave. My parents decided they were moving from Slough to Lowestoft. I mean, I was only seventeen at the time. It, to me, it was like they might as well have been moving to Australia. It's right. to lowest. It's only 180 miles on a map, but I'd been there my entire young life so far. And um, yeah, I wasn't going. I need to do something with my life. So it sort of um, it was sort of forced upon me. I mean, I left school. Um, I left school, did a right school, got average grades, but I left school not really knowing what I was going to do with life, like most 16 year old boys do when they leave school or girls. Uh, so I went to college and I did what every other 16 year old boy does. I did hairdressing. All right. Now, yeah, <laughs> that's made you laugh. I, 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 I do get a laugh out of that most of the time I say it. But I remember the, my mates taking the mick out of me and going, what are you doing that for? And to be honest, I was working as a Saturday boy in a barber's. Um, I sort of fell into the job, earning a bit of money. A friend of mine ran the place. And, yeah, I ended up going to college and doing hairdressing. Um, like I said, my mates took the mick out of me until they came up to the class and saw there was me and 19 females in there and they were like, you have played this well. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I have. <laughs> no, that's not why I fell into it. But yeah, I wasn't I wasn't really doing anything, anything with my life. So when my parents sort of made me make a choice in my young adult life, they were moving. I didn't want to go. I needed to do something. That's where I sort of followed in my dad's footsteps and I, I joined the army. Okay. Well, before we go down that road... Yep. Um, going to ask a little bit about the hairdressing oh god here we go <laughs> uh so what you said you had a little job um was that the reason you kind of like wanted to give it a go as a, a career maybe or learn a little bit more about it um, or was it just something to do no i mean i must enjoy it. I, I, I 
I probably didn't do it justice there. I did enjoy working there. You met some great people every day, and um, friends of mine still work there now, and the guy who owns it still cuts my hair now. Um, but it wasn't. It was. It was a. I just fell into it. It wasn't. I hadn't made the choice. I'd just sort of been ushered down this road. I was in there one Saturday afternoon when I was 14, 15 years old, and they mentioned they needed a new lad on a Saturday just to sweep the floors, make the teas, and wash hair and. Yeah, my dad said, well, why don't you do it, Josh? And I was like, okay. And spoke to the boss. He's like, I'll pay you 30 quid a Saturday or whatever it was back then. And I was like, nice, 30 quid, happy days. Ended up doing that. And I was there for three years doing it. Right. Um, but the college thing, it was sort of, it was leaving school not knowing what I was going to do in my life. Yeah. Like I said, I just wanted to play football and be outside and go to the pub and be with my mates, etc. I didn't really ever think about, I don't think I ever took school too seriously. Um so yeah, like I say, I fell into it. It was it was great for a while. Then the novelty wore off, and I wasn't really paying any attention in the lessons. I was there because I had to be there, yeah. um, and I couldn't really see myself going anywhere with life at that point. And you mentioned uh, school, uh, doing okay, average grades. What 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 kind of kid were you like? Uh, well, my dad was a police officer. I wasn't a, I wasn't a naughty kid. I, I, <laughs> I, was, I was terrified of uh, getting the uh, getting in trouble. But no, it was. It was good. I was, grew up in a strict household, um, sort of feared my dad, sort of tend to spend more time with my mum. But um, yeah, that I that looking back now, it was a great, I had a good upbringing. I was quite lucky. We were sort of middle class family, but I had two parents that loved me and they brought me, my brother and my sister up really well. Um, and yeah, we were, I was, I just wanted to play sport all the time. I just wanted to be outside and have a kick, have a kick about do anything else I'd just yeah like I said school really didn't sort of interest me but looking back now I regret not everyone does when they look yeah. back at school not working harder um but I'm lucky I came from a family that sort of pushed me okay and in regards to football did did you like join any club or did you do anything with that um, was it just like with I, your mates <laughs> I used to be a pretty good goalkeeper I keep yeah. getting told yeah I had trials at Reading and things like that but I mean I never actually got into an academy but I was always Played on, I played on the worst team in the league when I was like really little, sort of nine, ten years old. But being on the worst team in the league made you the best player on the pitch because instead of it being twenty nil, it's only seven or eight nil. But you learn so much more because you're busy all the time. And as I moved on, I sort of got to fourteen, fifteen, and sort of went and joined a better team. And that you've gone from being really busy in games to literally. You're having to kick a few footballs and then maybe make one save, but you have to switch on the whole time, so it's a different mentality. Yeah, uh, And, yeah, we won loads of stuff. It was great going from one end to the other. I, um, I wouldn't have got to where I had done within football if I hadn't have played for the teams that weren't very good uh, and got the experience. But, again, I enjoyed – I just – I didn't care who I played for. I just wanted to play football yeah. or at school, rugby, anything. Um, I remember skiving French lessons to go and – play football in the field with other years etc and yeah I just got in trouble a few times but my dad did the same before me so he could never really have a go about it yeah I, I think when we get to our age we kind of forget about our school times and, exactly and so it was so good right and yeah life was easy <laughs> yeah you get up in the morning you didn't have any worries in life you had to go and sit in a classroom try not to annoy the teacher well try and annoy her in some cases or him <laughs> But um, yeah, I, I look back now and my son's obviously going through school and I'm having to fight him to make him realise that, mate, this is so important. Yeah. Um, but 
but yeah, I'm sure my dad had the same discussions with me yeah. however many years ago it is now. <laughs> All right, so that, that was a nice insight into uh, Little Josh. Little Josh, yeah. Little Josh. Um, so you mentioned you wanted to follow in your dad's footsteps and join the military. Yeah. Um, so was that was that legitimately the, the kind of like insight or the, the reason you joined because you wanted to follow your dad or did you have a different kind of mindset behind it? Um, initially, well, I'd say 90% yes. I remember, I don't know how old I was, 12, 13, but my dad pulled a box of old uniform out of the loft one day and it was like Christmas had come early. I was chucking on all the old Combat 95s and hiding in the neighbour's garden, pretending to be a sniper or whatever. Um, and yeah, just, I just loved it. I mean, back then, what were you, you had Soldier, Soldier on telly. You had oh, Sh- Sharp. Remember Sharp yeah. with Sean Bean? Used to watch that all the time and Hornblower. Not that I really know much about the yeah. Navy, but I used to watch it. MASH? MASH, yeah. But again, my dad, <laughs> I grew up, my dad was a sort of, he loves history. Um, and he used to paint these little soldiers. Like, no, that wasn't for me, but it kept him happy. <laughs> but that sort of got me into it and watching these sort of programs and, I remember he made me watch a film, the the film Waterloo, about the Battle of Waterloo. I mean, it's Christopher Plummer. It's, it's twenty, well, it's probably 40, 50 years ago now, but he made me do a test afterwards on what had happened really? just to see if I'd paid attention. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, history at school, back on back into school, I, I really sort of, I really took interest in subjects that I liked. Uh, so history, PE, technology. I loved making things and building things, but english and yeah. french and yeah just i wasn't interested so that's why yeah. you didn't put your full attention into it but yeah following in his footsteps it was i think i was always destined to go that way i sort of had a bump in the road with a hairdressing but also I, by this point he was a police officer and i used to be around police officers a lot so especially in slough police station there used to be a bar up there so you go and play snooker in there and stuff and yeah i mean that's even before I joined the army, I always still wanted to try and join the police. But being 17, 18, you're not going to get in. So they want life experience. And what what better experience than joining the military? That's cool. That's cool. Um, so career office. Do you remember going there? Yeah, career office. went to the one in Reading. Oh, Reading uh, my yeah. dad took me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Nice. Uh, I remember there was a barbecue in, um, at my house and there was a few police officers around because all of them at that point were ex-military. Ah. And I remember saying to my dad, I want to join the infantry. I want to join the infantry. I want to be in a parachute regiment and things like this. And he was like, it was actually one of his mates went, don't do that. You'll just get blown up. You just cannon fodder. And look, hindsight, looking back now, cheers for that. Best bit of advice I ever got. But um, no, it ended up going with my dad to the careers office and followed in his footsteps and joined the Royal Engineers. When you joined, did you do a barb test? Do you remember? Is that the computer yeah, test? The computer yeah, thing. I remember being upstairs doing that thing and then... You had to go away for two days, didn't you? Uh, one night, two days to do initial tests. Yeah, like uh, fitness I think tests, I went right? to Purbright for that. Yeah, basically. I went to Purbright and all. Yeah, yeah, but I get his carry some jerry cans. And, yeah, yeah. yeah and you, I think uh, what's the is it bleep test? Bleep test, and then they take you down the gym. Yeah, they take <laughs> you to it for um, a, a a fizz session, sorry, a fitness session. Well, a, a bit of a thrashing yeah. in the gym in the evening, and yeah, do you know what? It was just a bit like, wow, what was this? Because <laughs> like, I was a fit lad, but I'd never been. I'd never slept in a room with 20 guys before or anything like that. What is this all about? Um, but yeah, it was it was great. It was just it was different. And then did you get a list of uh, roles or jobs you could do? Or did you know what you wanted to do? Because what was your dad in? My dad was in the engineers. He was his, engineers. Yeah, he was Royal Engineers, but he was, a, he was a driver and a diver. So 
Okay. He was on with pop star wages being a diver, but yeah. I don't I don't know if it was pop star wages back then. But um yeah, he he it, I didn't to be honest, I don't even know what trade I had until I got to basic training. Okay. It was just I knew I was joining the Royal Engineers. You just wanted to join the Engineers. Yeah. Yeah. Um I remember being in you go in and you meet sort of an LE major, don't you, or someone to interview you after you've done the two days and it's congratulations, you've been you've passed this. And you think you've you think you've won the lottery? Little do you know, this is literally a two day insight into the big picture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I remember coming home on the train that night and just just buzzing. Just, yeah. It's the first time I think I've ever been on a train myself as well. It was uh, <laughs> like you you get a train into London with mates, etc. But I was going, got to change somewhere to change somewhere else to get the Perbrakes. It's not exactly the easiest to get to, and just just little things like that. It was again, it was different to take you outside your comfort zone. Yeah. Um, so that, what year was that? 2004? That was 2003, I think. 2003. Yeah, I, li- okay. I literally joined the first week of 2004. I went to basic training. Got it. Okay. So there we go. Let's talk about that. Um, <laughs> so where did you do your basic? Basic training I did at ATR Litchfield. Okay. Um, okay. I don't know if it's still there. I don't know what it is now, but. So it is. Right. Okay. Um, and little insight. Uh, I joined at the very beginning of 2000. Right, okay. And I was the very first group of engineers that tested out Litchfield uh, after Basenborn. So okay. we, was, we were still training people at Basenborn. Yep. But they had a very, very small group of us that went mixed in with infantry. Okay. To see what it was like and see if it would work. Yep. Um, so Litchfield then blossomed into what it is now. And I do still believe that they re- they train our engineers there. Okay. But that was your basic training. So... What was that like for for you? Uh, basic training for me was, um, again, just you're obviously you're apprehensive when you first go. You 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 don't know what you're going into. But I think I thrived straight away. I just I loved it. I don't know why I loved being told what to do. It was just a <laughs> right. You're gonna get up at six in the morning. What <laughs> or things like that. Shaving every day and just installing that little bit. I was like I said, I was never a bad kid, but. Just adding that bit more discipline in to to, to your routine, etc. I mean, when you see when you get there, there's people from all over the all over the country, um, all walks of backgrounds, and it's just great. You're all in the same situation as each other, and you all just bond and help each other and push each other. I mean, some guys knew how to do one thing, other guys didn't know how to do another. So you're all working together to overcome issues. Yeah. Um, I just, I, I genuinely loved it. It was hard work. It, it's hard. It's basic training. Yeah. But I mean, the first two weeks of TikToking up and down a parade square, were, were you saying, what are we doing this for? But again, it's just getting you to listen to words of command and install discipline into you. And yeah, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Any kind of moment stand out or any uh, like instructor or anything like that? <laughs> um, yeah, my instructors, I, I, I Corporal McDermott, who is pretty sound actually. Um, I think he, we were his first intake as well as an instructor. Um, and yeah, the other full screws were pretty good. Um, we had an infantry drill sergeant as well. He was pretty funny. But no, even just the first time you pick up an SA-80 and you're stripping it and things like that, it's just your mind is focused on what you're doing and it, you, you're literally you're soaking in the information from your instructors and trying to keep it in your head. Um, blindfolded, doing it all. It, it, it's just repetitive, going through the drills, et cetera, et cetera. And you pick it up so quickly because you're in an environment of learning and discipline. Um, and it makes you look back at school and go, if I did this at school, I'd have got a lot further in life, if you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean. But um, 
again, I've got no regrets about that. That was who I was when I was young. And yeah, I mean, I was 17 and a half. I think I just made the cut to go into adult entry, not go to Harrogate and go to junior entry. Um, and I loved it. I generally love basic training. Do you remember getting your kit for the first time, getting issued all that? Like yeah, uniform? you're all getting marched up there in your long johns and your like <laughs> engineer tops and your your silver shadow trainers and oh god, do they it, still have those? I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Surely they've been them. <laughs> Horrendous them things. But yeah, I remember I found a box with old pictures of like. Do you know when you go on your sort of adventure training, basic training, you go to Wales for a weekend or whatever, and you're up in the hills. And you've all got Ronnie, literally lycra jogging bottoms on, and like the, the issue Chris Packet rain jackets, and you look like I don't know. You look like you've just bought all your kit off Amazon and gone up in the hills. You, you looking back at it now, you must you look like a right numpty. But again, it's uniformity, and everyone needs to look the same. And fit. you're all you're all striving for the same goal at the end of the day. So it sounds like you picked up training pretty quick. Nothing struggle with um, or anything. Struggles in training. Um, no, I think I, I was lucky. I was in a room with lads that were switched on as well. You obviously there were lads that wanted to be there, and there were lads that weren't sure, and there were lads that were just there because they'd been told to be there. But I said the vast majority of us just got on with it. Um, obviously, you'd get the, you'd always get the fun in games because it's basic training, etc. Like oh, I don't know, right? That room down there, swap with that room down there. Off you go. You got an hour to get your bed spaces swapped and stuff like that, or. I remember I hadn't ironed the creases in my trousers properly, so I got put on show parade and sent to the guard room or whatever, and you're getting thrashed up and down the ammo dump. But yeah. it is all fun and games. That's yeah. At the end of the day, it's nothing personal. It's just them trying to install discipline into you. Yeah, make you a, a soldier, soldier at the end, right? end of the day. So, yeah, find your rifle for the first time. It's like you're thinking this thing's going to be like a shotgun fire and it's a little ping into your shoulder. You're like, oh, that's all right, isn't it? Um or getting your head shaved for the first time because <laughs> yeah, I, no, I, I showed up with short hair. My oh, dad is pretty oh, nice. much one on the side, three on top. But got it. There were some lads that showed up with some big curls, <laughs> if you know what I mean. But I remember I watched a documentary about it was about the Paris. Um, it was on Amazon or one of them sort of online streaming services, and they they say when you go to base train, everyone shaves their head. It's to take your identity away because you're not Joe Blogs from Shrewsbury anymore. You're now Tom. If you know what I mean, you're now private blogs or whoever. You're not. They take your identity away because in the, the day you're being trained to be a, a soldier. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's not pink and fluffy. I know we all say, "Oh, training's easy now." It's pink and fluffy, but in the, the day, they're still doing the same things we did back then, just differently. Yeah. So you finished training. Yep. Um, and then from Litchfield where where do you go next I think I went home and drunk for 48 hours <laughs> <laughs> now I think they let you have to, a weekend off don't they and then you report to Jib Barracks um, yeah I think it was just that you do your pass off and your parents are there and you it's, it's, you are a proud it's a proud moment in your life your dad came down for that mum dad brother sister I yeah. think my nan both grandparents came and stuff but it is a it is a proud day isn't it it is you're yeah. passing off you're officially a soldier in the British army um, what's it two and a half months three months of I think it's 12 weeks isn't yeah. it basic and then and then you get thrashed and you turn into yeah. non-civvy you're a soldier so. yeah <laughs> I going home for the first time and stood in the fish and chip shop stood to attention trying to order your fish and chips if you know what I mean and what am I doing <laughs> but yeah. it's been installed into you yeah. because you've you've had 12 weeks of being told if you're not stood to attention you stood at ease or I don't know that's maybe exaggerating it a little bit but you've just you've changed as a person yeah 
Um, getting up and making your bed in the morning. Yeah. Hospital corners. Trying to do that in a duvet is quite hard. But uh... I remember one of my corporals, uh, before we move on to Jib, uh, saying, you'll easily be spotted when you're walking downtown because soldiers march or, or walk straight yeah. rather than slouch. So, yeah, no hands yeah. in your pockets, etc. Yeah. Um, um, so, yeah, proud moment. Proud moment, went home, drunk for a weekend, and then, yeah, tipped up at Jib Barracks on the... Sunday afternoon and yeah, there you go. Twelve more weeks of learning how to blow stuff up for living, and then re- rebuilding it. Funnily enough, but um, yeah, no, I love Jib as well. It's brilliant. So let, let's break that down. So uh, both you and I, ex Royal Engineers, yep. uh, but there's probably many people out there that either don't know anything about the engineers, yep, or think we're Remy, <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, or there's maybe people listening to this that are contemplating joining the military and yep. maybe join the Royal Engineers. So. Let's talk about, you could talk about Jib Barracks, what stood out from you, um, maybe some highlights. Yeah, I mean, let's go back to Litchfield. So Litchfield was your, it's, it's your phase one training, isn't it, back then? So it's your, your 12 weeks of initial uh, learning how to be a soldier. Because at the end of the day, you're a soldier first and an engineer second. So passing that, you then move on to Gibraltar Barracks. Was it, is it three RSME? Yeah. Yeah, that's in Free Royal School of Med- Military Engineering Regiment, Regiment. <laughs> which is in Camberley, well, Midley, Midley Manor. Um, and you go there and you do another 12 weeks of phase two training so learning how to be a combat engineer at the end of the day um, bridging blowing stuff up fencing I don't know what else you do yeah I mean we <laughs> digging <laughs> yeah, lots of digging lots of digging uh, basics of, of most trades as well isn't it so you learn the basics yeah. of bricklaying carpentry yeah. um, I remember making cement I've never yeah. made cement before <laughs> uh, yeah I've done a bit of roofing before but I never <laughs> Helped out build a roof, but yeah, I don't know if that's still standing. We won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I remember because it's phase two, we're not taught or treated like adults, but you didn't have to march everywhere. It was kind of like half up with your yeah, arms rather than, rather than in like shoulder step, high. But not not like you're on a on the Queen's birthday parade yeah. or anything. But um, you, got to, you, you wore the cap badge, didn't you? You didn't have the belt yep. yet. That's correct, yeah. yeah. So we, we had the cap badge, um, beret. Uh, and then we were working towards getting our stable belt. Yeah, I mean, I remember tipping up, and my instructor, um, Doghead, six foot four, maroon berry on, built like a fridge. And I thought, wow, look at this guy, if you know what I mean. Um, that's what got me interested in doing P Company straight away, was seeing him, and my other instructor was uh, Ginge Webby, who was the last core RSM. Really? Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, I had another, I think it's Corporal Pay. He was a bit of a... I won't go into that. Uh, yeah, I thought he was a bit of a knob, but can I say that? <laughs> yeah, we did. We, we yeah, did. he just had he had more of a chip on his shoulder than the lads with maroon berries on their head. So yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but again, back onto Jib. Again, getting there. You're going. You've you're getting. You've been through training with all these guys originally at Litchfield. Now you're going with the same guys to Gibraltar Barracks. And I think we had a few extras put into our troop. Um, but yeah, you get there and you. I think the first day is a PFT and I think it's the quickest one I've ever done in my career, if you know what I mean, <laughs> seven minutes or whatever it was. Wow. Happy days, this is going to be easy. But again, it's, you, like you said, you're not treated as an adult yet. So you still, one day you're, you're doing things well and the next day I'll just thrash you into the ground. Yeah. Funnily up and down a bridging site or whatever. But um, yeah, I loved it again. Just got there and you're just soaking in the information. Um, and I was quite lucky. I lived near Jib as well by this point and you were getting your weekends off. So you would, every other weekend you were going home and you were, you just felt, 
I just, I don't know. I just completely changed as a person. Gone out. That ladder used to go out and just get absolutely off your head for the sake of it. I just go out and have a few beers and enjoy myself now. Yeah. Was there any particular part of uh, comp engineer training that stood out for you or like a an exercise or a story from it that um, you remember quite well? Well, no one loves digging eight-man battle trenches or whatever they are with, with a little, what they call, entrenching tool. Um, yeah, do you know what? It was just, you'd gone, you were getting taken out of your comfort zone again, weren't you? You'd been pushed in basic training. Now you're being pushed even more in, I think our final exercise, it was a week digging in on near Farnborough Airfield um, and you're going through your bridging and all that sort of stuff. Um, I wouldn't say there's anything bad. You got I got thrashed a few times, but everyone gets thrashed a few times. Yeah. I, I remember when we were doing our bridging, um, do you know when you hit the pins out the bottom of a Bailey Bridge or whatever they're called, LSB? I, I can't remember. It's Bailey, I think it was Bailey Bridge when we yeah. were in. And you had the two pins at the bottom that secured the bottom and someone had knocked one of them out when they weren't meant to and this panel fell off and no one would own up to it. And it was like, oh, just put your hand up. Yeah. Because it was a group, group punishment, right? Well, it was <laughs> just looking around at people going, someone just own up because we're going to get thrashed, whatever happens. And oh, right, it was me. And you can see the full screw looking at me going, was it you? It was me. Right, if you know what I mean. But otherwise, it's one of the ones you just got to take it for the team. So you were one to do that? Well, I wouldn't say one to do it all the time, but it was just... If you've done something wrong, and I try and instill that into Jensen now, if, you, yeah. if you've messed up, life's so much easier if you just put your hand up and go, yeah, I've, I might have made a mistake there. But if, we'd have been thrashed all day until they, until whoever it was would have put their put yeah. their hand up. But oh, we got a beer. It was just someone own it. I'll do it. I wouldn't say I'd do that for everything, but yeah, yeah, it's one of them. You remember building bridges? So building bridges um, was all right. Um, I just, MGB, I, MGB, MGBs, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, Did they? When you went through, I mean, it's only three years after I went through, but they're like the Hilti bolt gun, like things like that. Yeah, Hilt, learn how to start a generator. The old countryman, we got to yeah. wind it up like, and an then old, pull it out before it yeah, goes. Yeah, snap your wrist off. <laughs> um, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Your confidence charge for the first time. The first time you get a bit of P four debt in. Yeah. And you light your safety fuse and you've got to walk away slowly. I, again, I loved all that sort of stuff, but it's like school. You've got things you like and things you don't like. So that's where I think I fell in, not fell in love, but I, I definitely geared more towards the combat side of engineering to the sort of construction side and things got like it. that. Yeah. Um and again, my 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 full screw at the time, doghead. It was one of them ones where you just look up to him and not I want to be you, but I I want one of the maroon berries, and that's what that's what got me massively okay. into wanting to go into P Company. So you you were quite fit, like yeah, uh, I was one of the fittest in the in the that intake of troops. Um, I mean, I was seventeen and a half, young whippet, um, and yeah, passed out from jib, loved it, and I went straight on to P Company. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, I remember <laughs> I remember. you get the old, like, briefings where you get, like, Hereford come in and brief you and SB and SRR and all that stuff and 5-9. The one brief you never got was the 9 Squadron one or 2-3 had been formed by then. Um, and I was like, all oh, my... I was really keen on, like, trying to do the 5-9 course and stuff. And then I had that at Litchfield and then... Having a full screw who's nine squadron, that's gone out the window. I want to go and do P Company. So, yeah, literally, I think I finished jib in the July and they gave us two weeks, 
three weeks summer leave and I went straight from there, straight up to Catrick. Okay. Did, uh, did you did you get told stories and stuff? Was that what like ignited it to be what you wanted to do? Like what 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 kind of like made that nine squadron itch want to um, be? Obviously, you stand out in a crowd because you've got a different colour lid on. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't that. It was just... I just think you've got a bit more of an aura when you're walking around. Um, you look, you've, you've been through you've been through jib. You always mm-hmm. notice the, 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 the five nine full screws or the nine squadron ones before... Yeah, you do. ...anyone else. Um, I don't know. When you're an exercise, just, they just looked like soldiers. Like the kit was better than the other full screws. Got mess tins hanging off his burger and things like that, if you know what I mean. Or... Yeah, just, I don't know, I just, the minute, I, I just wanted to be different. Okay. I wanted to be in the engineers. I mean, I wanted to join the parachute regiment before, but my old man obviously said, don't do that, you just be cadden fodder. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just, I I wanted to do something different. Um, and, yeah, I just, I don't know, you just get that bug, you want to do something, you're going to do it at the end of the day. That's the type of person I am. If someone says you can't do something, we'll come on to that later. But, yeah, I don't, I don't know, I just, I signed up literally, did summer leave, went up to Ripon, did pre-power in Ripon, four weeks of, I found pre-power harder than P Company. Okay. Um, and yeah, well, I just loved it, mate. So <clears throat> for anybody that never did P Company, never done any any of the kind of, yeah. I wouldn't call them elite, but they're they're another level. Yeah. Because um, I, I mean, I, I was trying out for Army Diver, so... You know, I, I, in, arduous course. Arduous course. Yeah. yeah. Um, what does that look like? What does it feel like um, if someone does want to have that mindset of going for the next level? Um, well, so relief. I've, I've passed you. I've got my, my Royal Engineer staple belt. Again, that's another proud day. Your parents will come yeah. to your pass off, and you do that little boat assault onto the beach at Hawley Hard, and you're sprinting around because you think you look really cool. And in the day, you look like idiots running around a shingle beach. But yeah, did that one on summer leave and. I then literally get your first posting, didn't you? And mine was to go to pre-para in Ripon at 5-1. So 5-1 is the other parachute squadron in, in the engineers. Um, so went up there. Literally, I'm probably the newest person in the army up there. There was me and another lad I went training with and got up there and you're still in all your, like, your basic training kit. Everyone else has got Gucci boots and things like that. And I didn't have a clue what I was going into. But got up there, just got my head down and worked hard. I didn't realise the first day I got up there, I was like racing the, the PTI. He was taking the he was taking the session. So the first day was just a thrashing, just to see who's there and try and whittle people out. But he was running us up and down these hills and I was just jogging next to him thinking, this is easy. But what I didn't realise was I was pushing the PTI so he was going harder, so more people were going oh, off no. the back. Because <laughs> I got pulled that later that afternoon by one uh, full screw, um, normal engineer full screw, and he went, mate, just slow down, don't race him. All right? I was like, okay, sorry, I didn't realise. Um, so so he, he was actually trying for... Yeah, he was trying for peak, uh, pre-power as well. Um, and yeah, it was... Um, I, 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 P Company was hard, because I didn't... I didn't... Not, uh, pre-power was hard. I didn't... I knew it was going to be hard, but I didn't realise I was going to go into it. They literally, the way I was always taught was, you get pre-power is going to be hard because the engineers don't want to send anyone that's not going to pass P Company. Okay. Uh, so they will thrash you on pre-power. So when you get to P Company, it should, it's not going to be easy, but you, you sh- you're expected to pass. Yeah. Unless you get injured. Um, or, I don't know, you just decide you don't want to do it. But 
Yeah, that f- three and a half, four weeks. It was, it was half, but again, good. Loved it. Um, just got the bug for it. Don't get me wrong. There's some days you wake up in the morning, you go, I can't be bothered today. Oh, my feet are hurting or this and that. But again, being around guys who'd been in the army, seniors as well, officers, full screws, Okay. Guys who've been in the army a lot longer than you, you were picking up stuff straight away. You were thriving off information. I always find that you're always looking at each other in the army. Why has he got that bit of kit? Oh, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Oh, it's like I like that. But then you go out and buy this kit and you skint for the month. But um, yeah, again, it was just, uh, you, you're just sucking in all that knowledge, taking it all in and trying to inst- instill it into what you're doing. Um, so yeah, always don't be at the front of the pack. Just, this is where I learned the term, be the grey man. Just sit in the pack and just keep your mouth shut and be the grey man and you get left alone then. So is pre-para just fizz? Pre-para is literally fizz. I mean, you do a map reading lessons and stuff like that, right. but it is. it was two fizz sessions a day. I mean, I, well, to be honest, it was that long ago. I can't really remember. It was, I just remember it being hard. Yeah, okay. Um, but you're going out, you're doing the sort of P company events. Um, and I remember the 10 miler. Your 10 mile, I think you have to do it in under an hour and a half. I can't remember the exact time, so it's hour 50. Um, what a run! Uh, 10 mile of Bergen, oh, Bergen, Bergen weapon, okay. a tab, a tab, okay. uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it's had under under an hour 50, but I think on on pre prep, we did it like an hour 40, hour, hour 45. I was, what the, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was nails, but again, just, when you've done these sort of things, it's just you feel great. Um, milling. Milling for the first time is good oh, yeah. fun where you're just boxing yeah. and stuff. But yeah, again, I was, I was, I just turned 18. So I was fit as a fiddle, didn't have a care in the world. I'd got a full time job. I had a career now. You're earning pretty decent money. I mean, it's not the best, but it was a lot more than I was earning being a hairdressing apprentice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, life was definitely on the up. I'd made a choice, I'd committed to it. And nice. life was going in a, in a pretty, on a pretty decent trajectory. Good. So then you pass. So you pass pre-para. Um, I think, I think seven. I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but you you go from pre-para weekend off and you tip up in Catrick for P Company. Uh, all cap badges there now. Literally full 120 brokes from different different branches of the army. Um, and yeah, week one, day one, you go out, you do your eight mile CFT. Uh, combat fitness test, Bergen tab. Yeah. I think you're on the Trinasium then. And then it's, um, it was, was it ICFT, the two miler? Is it ACFT now? I don't know what oh, they call it. ACFT, yeah, I think it's, it's a two miler right. full kit, Bergen rifle. And I think you've got to do it in 18 minutes. Um, and this is where the PTI just went. He did the first mile, I think, in about six minutes. It's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> so, yeah, you're sprinting up. And this is where I, I realised how cutthroat P Company is. So I came in pretty sort of well under the time, 16 minutes. And then that you could hear him counting down when it got to close to 18. So 17, 55, 56, 57, 58, 59. Someone's diving across the line. Fail. And people got sent home because they didn't do it. Wow. It was, right, okay, I need to, I need to properly switch on here. Um but yeah, again, and then you sort of, it's just sort of the first two and a half weeks are just getting thrashed and thrashed and thrashed and thrashed the land and nod and stuff where you, you pull into this little valley and there's four instructors on the top of the hill and you're literally running up and down around them and then the sergeant major will run off the other way and you've got to chase him down. And 
yeah, again, it was just one of the ones, just be the grey man, get in the middle, get your head down. And yeah, I remember one of the days, just, I realised that some people were cheating as well. So you get your Bergens weighed, and there was a medic actually. He had a big five litre water, uh, water uh, what they call the old bottles in his Bergens, get his Bergen weighed, take the lid off and kick it over. I was thinking, you sneaky. Yeah. Mm. But anyway, it's not someone's place to grass anyone up, is it? But yeah. No, I, 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 again, it was nails, and most nights you were, I remember getting there, and the colour man from the P Company staff was like, right, lads, best bit of advice I can give you. Eat like a lion. Just eat. Just keep eating. Eat all the time. So you were going in the scoff house and, yeah, every morning waking up, it was uh, one of the ones where you just... I listened to another podcast um, recently, Jay Morton did, um, SES Who There Wears, and he talks about it when he's on selection. People jacking in in the morning, it sort of gives you energy. It it sort of... Well, if he's jacking, I'm still here. I, I must be doing all right here. I'm, you it, you sort of the life gets sucked out of them and it comes into you and whoever's yeah. left. And by the end of it, I went into test week, so it's two and a half weeks and it's test week of the eight events or whatever it is on P Company. And yeah, I went into it knowing I was going to pass. I just, just I don't, felt it. I felt, obviously you're nervous still, but I just yeah. felt I'm fit, I'm still here. Um, the one thing I was worried about was a million because I've never milled before, but millions literally, it's a minute of controlled aggression just hitting someone opposite you and, yeah, I won that as well. I did all right. So, nice. um, yeah. So, you pass? Yeah, test week, nails, um, passed everything. Um, and yeah, just it's one of them ones where you're standing on the parade square at the end of the week and you're, all, you're not known by a name, you've got a P company number. Um, oh, have you? I didn't know that. Yeah, you so. just, you've got your name across your chest, but everything, you've got a number on your shoulder and you okay. it's all in lightweights as well, the old green lightweights. Right. Uh, you got your number on your on your leg as well, um, and yeah, your number's called. I think I was seventy two, and it's number seventy two. Sir, come to attention, pass, and you stand at ease. Ah, oh, thank God for that. Nice, but you do get the one number. I don't know thirty seven, for example. Sir, fail, and you have to march off the parade. Really? Yeah, and stand at the Blood. side, even after all that. Yeah. Wow. So, um, so yeah, it was just. It was a great feeling getting a. Yeah. Because you know you're getting your, your maroon lid. You're gonna you're gonna go down to Bryce. You're gonna learn to jump out of an airplane, and you're gonna get paid five pound extra a day for it. That was that's that's beer tokens for the weekend. It's um it was yeah. I, I, again, it was another proud moment in life. When did you get given your lid then? So they've they've called your name or your number. Yeah, they've said pass. Do you get given it then? Or? No, it's sort of uh, I you you just or did you have it in your pocket? I can't remember. Uh, you either because you you're walking around with the old green sort of. Or the crap at? No, not... I don't ever say that. I've never called anyone that. But <laughs> it's sort of like the old neck scarf, but you fold it up into a hat. I can't remember what they're called. Um, God, I'm, my memory's gone. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but that comes off and you might put your lid on then. I don't know. That's what they do now. That's what they did on that documentary. I was, okay. Mate, I can't remember what I did yesterday after the time. And then there's a slightly different uh, stable belt as well, isn't there? Um, do you get given that? Yeah, so, that... I mean, I... I so you passed, uh, but on the on the final day, it's it's your five mile stretcher race, I think. Um, and usually, all your regimental COs will come up, all the RSMs, and they're running with you because at the end of the day, they need blokes to pass. Okay. Um, and I remember um, the old two three RSM. Um, he was running next to me, and then 
obviously stand up, you pass at the end and afterwards you're back in at P Company lines and start major come around. And there was, I think out of 120 people started P Company, only 27 passed that time. Wow. Um, and yeah, I, mean, I, was, I was like, happy days, passed. Well, 27 or 37, but it was quite a low number. Um, and the RSM, I think it was five or six engineers that passed. Four were going to five, one or two of us were going to nine squadron. Um, and yeah, literally finished P Company. I think he sent me on a week's leave, the RSM. He went, go and have a week off. Uh, am I not meant to report? On Monday, he went, no, I'll, I'll, ring, the, I'll ring the two IC now. So they give me a week off and I ended up reporting in Aldershot a week later um, to an empty barracks because uh, they were in Iraq. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so what do you do after that? Do you do any other courses before... Uh, you get into your new first regiment, or no? So I, I I tipped up at nine squadron uh, for a month. You get when you talk about different belts there. You got your it's the engineer staple belt, but with a Pegasus on it instead of a cap badge. Yeah, um, and you get issued all your badges, your regimental insignia. And yeah, I spent four weeks there. Then I had to clear because I had to go to Chatham and do my um, trade training. Yeah, A two is it A. Three A two, I don't know, I can't remember. Uh, what the uh, well, Chatham? Yeah, Chatham uh, trade what, training. One, one, oh, one, one RSME, RSME but yeah. it's classes your A three, isn't it, or A two? Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, went there, did six months of learning how to paint and plaster. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. So what was your trade? Building and structural finishing. Oh, there you go. <sighs> I think I literally just got drunk for six months and did fizz. <laughs> but no, I, you know, what? it was great learning a bit of a trade, tiling, painting, sign writing, all that sort of stuff. But that is that your phase three training, isn't it, of your yes. engineer career? Um, but yeah, it was good. It was again. It was you're getting into that army habit of work hard, play hard, aren't you? You're working hard during the day, but you're out at night doing a bit of fizz and then go and have a couple of beers with, with your mates. Yeah. So you're still training hard. You've passed P Company. Yeah, I passed P Company. I had marine lid. I hadn't done my jumps course yet, so I didn't. I didn't have parachute wings on my arms yet. So you were classed as a penguin, a flightless bird. Okay. Uh, so yeah but no it's great you get to chat I mean there's other other lads with maroon lids on that you start to get to know uh, there's quite a few penguins there where you'd pass P company but hadn't got your jumps um, so yeah I mean I just it was great doing your trade course because you are learning you're getting civilian qualifications at the end of the day but that's not really what I joined the army for no um, sounds like P company was where you wanted to be yeah I, I, um, I well obviously I wanted to go more down the combat route yeah. um, of explosive method of entry and things like that. Um, yeah. yeah, I loved all that. I didn't really like filling HESCO and stuff, but yeah. <laughs> no one does. But no, I just, I was, again, it was just, you're in a good career at the end of the day. You're doing as you're told. They're sending you on a course. They're paying you for you to be educated. So when you're there, you're going to work hard. You're going to keep fit. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to enjoy myself at the same time going out at night. Um, you're 18, 19 years old. You're young, free, you're single. You're getting paid a decent wage. Crack on. Yeah. So you complete Chatham, uh, get your trade under your belt. Yep. And then uh, you go back. Back to all the shop, back to Nine Squadron. Uh, and they're in Iraq again. <laughs> all right. Yeah. I'm not sure where, where I first. They were in Iraq when I got back to all the shop. Um, but yeah, I mean, because they were in Iraq, we managed to get on our jumps courses pretty quickly. So okay. I think there were six of us that were classed as penguins, all went to Bryce Norton, jumping out of a, do your week's ground training, then you, uh, you're jumping out, static line out of a C-130. Brilliant course, loved it. Um, 
I mean, that, I think it was, it's only meant to be a two-week course, but we ended up doing over a month because I just couldn't get airplanes. Right. Um, So you were literally ringing up an answer phone in the morning. Yeah, no jumps today. Cool, I'll stay at home then. Um, Yeah, I mean, getting your parachute wings, that's great. Yeah, what what is that like? Because had you ever jumped out of a plane before? No, never jumped out of a plane before. And I remember my first ever jump, uh, you get given your stick numbers, right, you're number one. All right, I'm first in the door, brilliant. So if you're flying in over Western, on well, you're taking off from, we had to fly from Lynham because Bryce Norton was being resurfaced at the time. And you're always, you're always lobbing onto Western on the green, um, lobbing, jumping out of an aeroplane. Okay. And I remember they say, you see the A34, red light will come on. When you cross it, green light will come on, go. Um, and it was one of them, right? There's the A34, red light's on. Oh, here we go. <laughs> what did you feel? Can you remember that first uh, Obviously, jump? you're nervous. It's that... It's that you're not sure whether you want to, like, you're not sure if you're scared or excited. It's it's that adrenaline, like, I've got to go, because if I don't go, I've failed the course. So it's you, you're refusing the door, you're off. Uh, and I've done all that P Company pre and stuff. I've got, I've got to jump out of this airplane. And, yeah, you mean, the minute the green light came on, there was no hesitation. You're getting pushed out the door anyway, but it's go, and you're out. Um, yeah, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, check canopy. Right, I've got to shoot. Cool, there's the ground. Happy days. Wow, this is awesome. Um, that's with no kit. Literally just a parachute on, and then the more jumps you do, they're adding more kit to you. Okay. Uh, yeah, military parachuting, it's, it's not, I wouldn't say it's fun, because at the end of the day, you stood on a C-130 when you're fully trained with your body weight strapped to you and the power edge giving you a load of mortar bombs on top of that and stuff. But uh, again, it's what you get paid to do. It's, it's your job. I'm guessing you... Learn how to do all that on the ground. Before. Yes, yeah, yeah, they don't just take you up and throw you out of yeah, plane. Because uh, I've never done the train, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so you spend a couple of days sort of learning to land properly, rolling around mats at Bryce Norton. Right. And then you're in the swings, like parachute swings, so it's like bungees and you've got the harness and stuff on. So you're learning to pull your rigging lines and get yourself out of twists. Um, it's the amount of blokes that jump out and they're in twists, you've got to start kicking out and... Wow. Learning to drop your kit. Um, what happens if a parachute comes underneath you and you get an air steal? So you'll drop. Yeah, um, yeah you, you taught all the basics, then you're taken up, thrown out, and you love it straight away. Is it static line, they call static it? Static line, yeah. So, so they- you're hooked into the plane. So the minute you go out the side doors, um, 1,000, 2,000, check canopy. Uh, if it's not there, <laughs> reserve. But right. yeah, it'll be open within four seconds of getting out of plane. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'd ever want to do that, but but you you trained for it, and I guess after the first jump, you knew you could do it, and you're like, right, I'm ready for the next one. Yeah, I mean, again, I thought I just you just want to get up there and jump. It's just good fun. Yeah. Uh, like I said, until they start strapping loads of kit to you, and it, you're getting heavier and heavier and heavier, and you're suddenly playing, um, and then they start obviously you jump at a thousand feet for your first one, and then they get you down to six hundred, and you're out. Right, shoots open and you're on the ground within a minute of getting out the door. Wow. Because um, in the day, the paratroopers are most vulnerable when they're in the air, so they want to get you out and down on the ground so you're ready to fight. Um, so, yeah, but it's not fun, though, when you're doing brigade lobs and stuff like that after you've gone into, got back to your unit and you're fully qualified and you've literally got so much kit strapped to you. Yeah. But, and they get you up in the plane, I think it's 40 minutes before you do, you're hooked on going through all your checks and you just stood up, blokes throwing up everywhere because the plane's flying low level. 
It's not the best experience. You can't wait to get out of the plane by that right. point. You literally cannot wait to get out of the yeah. plane. Um, so how long is uh, jump course? Jump course, I think it was eight jumps you have to do. Eight so jumps. Eight jumps. Um, a night, so one night jump and two sim sticks. So sim sticks where you go out both sides of the plane at the same time. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. And the idea is like one goes, next one goes. So you don't meet behind, but you always get blokes going out at the same time and coming around. But it's to try and keep parachutes spread out because, like I said, if you get if you're too close to each other, and one goes over the top of the other, you'll get an air steal and yeah. the chute will just collapse and blokes will be falling. Um, yeah. I mean, my first ever brigade lob, there were blokes with broken pelvises, and I think we jumped in. The winds were a bit iffy, and yeah, I remember someone's kit. The kit. So when you've jumped. You, you check around you, make sure there's no one near, and then you're looking below and you drop your kit, which is on a 30-foot rope that's below you. Okay. So that hits the ground first and then you land. I remember kit falling because ropes <sighs> have snapped. and oh, no. Yeah, it's just, it's mad. Wow. But good fun as yeah. well. At the end of the day, you're doing your job. You're getting paid to do this. Yeah. So that sounds like, if I math this properly, uh, a year, year and a half-ish of training complete, you've done... Um, so six months basic and phase two, two, a couple of months on P company, a year and a half, I'd say, yeah, probably yeah. by this point. So um, 19 years old, probably. Yeah. So you're about 19 by now, uh, all training complete. And we're then on to like real time service. Yeah. So, so I think, when did I get back to the end of 2000 and, or mid 2005? I think I got back to Aldershot, August. Maybe 2000, yeah, 2005, I think I got back to Nine Squadron in Aldershot. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they were in Iraq. So we were the rear party. I think some of the lads managed to get out who had just got their jumps, but because we're penguins, we didn't get out. Um, so yeah, it was welcoming them back and just going into your regimental life, exercise, training, kit maintenance, etc. Work hard, play hard. Yeah. Um, especially being in Aldershot, it was definitely work hard, play hard. Um, but yeah, I mean, my first. I remember being told in the January of 2006 that I was, I think it was in one troop and three troop had some slots available for, they were going, they were deploying to Afghanistan uh, on Herrick 4 and they needed volunteers. I'll go straight away. Happy days. I need, to, this is what you join the army for at the end of the day, to get away. Um, so yeah, April or March 2006, um, first deployed to Afghanistan. Okay. How'd you find it? What was your um, thoughts on that? How did I find it? It was it was weird because obviously you knew what you were going into. Well, we were going out to, to disrupt the opiate trade, weren't we? And just boots on the ground, etc. Um, and yeah, we we were there for six weeks and nothing happened. You were going out on patrols with just like sunglasses and your, your floppy obvious is on, if you know what I mean. Your sort of jungle hats. Um, and yeah, you've just you, the locals are all around you. I was in, in Gresh with A Company Three Power, and you're going out. You're in schools playing football, etc. And yeah, it was just like okay, we Phil Hesco, and we go on patrols, and we eat, and we train, and it's going to be like this for six months. And because we were attached to Five One, we got the the the, the, the rubbish end of the R and R stick, and we got sent home first. So we did six weeks in country, sent home. R&R two weeks, loads of money in the bank, where well, he pop-starred it, and then back in the desert. And it was as if someone had just flicked a switch and it just all kicked off one day. Really? I think three guys died. 
remember there being an artillery captain uh, who died and a few others, seven RHA captain, and it, it was like we'd gone from nothing happening to um, it all just kicking off. Um, yeah, we I think a week or so after we got back off R&R, my two sections of the nine squadron troop were flown into Musakala to help PF out Pathfinders because they were trapped in there just to try and build some field forts and some sangers just to make it a bit make the compound a bit more secure and I think we were meant to be there a couple of days ended up being there nearly a month right but it again it goes I refer back to the best and worst experiences of my life it was just it's just mad <laughs> it's just people shooting at you you're shooting back it's conventional war fighting at the end of the day um, crazy but Again, this is what you've been trained to do. I remember the first time I ever got shot at, it was like, and you literally, you, 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 your training kicks in straight away and you return fire and you you do what you've been taught to do. You're looking after the bloke next to you, your left and your right, and you are working together as a team. Um, yeah, it was just mad. <laughs> it's exhilarating. It's just, again, the adrenaline. It's, it's, words can't describe how you feel. Um, and yeah I mean that, that one night the guy next to me a guy called Terry he, he took a ricochet off the top of the wall and the round lodged into his pea helmet okay um, and he just had this 7.62 round stuck in the front of his pea helmet 7.62 uh, yeah yeah again just words can't describe what you're going for it's just yeah. it's just great but again you're around PF who are a bit more they're just they're top boys. They, they, there's no attitude there whatsoever. They, you're there to help them. They're there. They know you need to help them, and you just got on with them like a house on fire. Some of our lads ended up getting like seconded to PF because they had a few casualties. Um, and yeah, we, we had a great time with them. It was good fun. Nice, fun but scary at the same time. Yeah. So, uh, especially being first tour. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I was, I was 19 years old. I had a crow pipe, the old LSW. I was a proper newie. I just. What would I do with this? If you know, what I mean, any chance you get hold of one of the GPMGs, you would. Um, so yeah, but referring back to, it, I mean, when I say it's one of the worst experiences of my life, when I got back from Afghanistan, um, found out that a lad I'd gone to school with, uh, a guy called Luke McCulloch, who was serving with the Royal Irish, he um, he unfortunately lost his life in Sangin. Um, I remember the day. I remember the op minimised being called, and I remember all that sort of stuff. I didn't have a clue it was him though. Wasn't until I got back to the UK that I realised um, that he 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 unfortunately got hit by a mortar. And I think the story, well, the story from what I've been told goes is the doc managed to keep him alive on the ground for six hours, but they just couldn't get a Chinook in to get him out. And by the time they did, he obviously passed away, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, best and worst experience of my life. Mm. I've got quite a few of them, good yeah. and bad experiences. Yeah. But no, at that point in my life, being a young nineteen-year-old lad who who hadn't had his eyes open to the world, I went from a boy to a man pretty pretty, pretty quickly good. on that tour. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up being so Musakala, Sangin. I was in Sangin for a while. That was pretty hairy. Uh, Nalzad. I've stood on the tallest building in Nalzad trying to f- put sandbags on a roof, getting shot at every five minutes. It's like, what am I doing this for? But again, I, good and bad. Working with the Power Reg as well. I love doing that. Um yeah, just I, I, nothing will ever replicate that for that initial six months for me. It was just, yeah, it, like I said, it, it turned me from a boy to a man. 
And then you return back. So I'm guessing that's like end of 2006. So I think we, because we went out early, we were the first like guinea pigs to come back and do the fly back to Cyprus, spend a day on a beach, get drunk, right? Yeah. fly home the next day um, just to get it out of your system. The uh, What's it called? What do they call it? Um, uh, it begins... <sighs> starts with an R, doesn't it? It does. That's what I'm thinking. Um, it's not reflection or... No. Uh, recuperation? I or don't know. Something like that? Yeah. But anyway, they stick you on a beach in Cyprus for 24 hours, give you a load of beer. Not just a normal beach. This is like a secluded military beach. Yes. They're not going to send yeah. you to Iron Apple or anywhere no. like that. <laughs> but um, yeah, that was good. It was just one of the ones where you could just wind down a little bit and have a few beers. Any wrongs get put right between yourselves. And yeah, I think we had we then sort of 40 of us on a 200-seater plane to fly home. And yeah, you're home. You're back in the UK. Tour done. Yeah. Um, got back. And we. this is where 2-3, so 9 Squadron and 5-1 were part of 2-3 Engineer Regiment. And we'd moved from, they'd moved, 5 one had moved from Ripon and 9 Squadron had moved from Aldershot to Woodbridge, which is just north of Colchester. Brand new barracks. So right. you'd gone from these old dilapidated blocks in Aldershot to brand new swanky barracks. I think we spent two days there and they sent us on leave for seven weeks. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Was that uh, like new single man room type? Yeah, the, the Z type the stuff. Z type, so yeah. yeah, you'd gone from living in a four man bunk to yeah. this, I've got my own toilet and shower. <laughs> That's great. Feels weird, doesn't it? When you yeah, first... I don't know. I, it was great having your own room and stuff, but I also liked being around the boys, just having a laugh yeah. and a few beers, etc. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's good and bad. It's like anything in life, it's good and bad. You, you New stuff's great, but don't forget what you had before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So, you go and leave. Um, then what's like, what's on the horizon next? So, leave... Um, seven weeks got back, and then I I, I went and did my Carter in I think it was the January of two thousand and eight. Yeah, so start two thousand eight, I did my Carter. Came I think I came second on that, so I got promoted to Lance Corporal. Nice. Um, yeah, that was nails. But again, it's one of the ones you just get your head down and work hard. Um, got promoted Lance Jack, so a bit more responsibility now. Wow, bit more money as well, which is quite nice. But yeah, but. Did that, and then we started pre-deployment training to go back to Afghan again in 2008 um, on Um Yeah, deployed. When, uh, when was this in 2008? Yeah, summer tour, 2008. Summer. Yeah, okay. so did the summer, Herrick 4 was the summer tour in 2006, and then we redeployed in 2008. We were going back into a place called Sangin, uh, Sangin DC, and when, I mean, when I left there in 2006... There was a big op to put a bridge in to get from to connect Fob Rob and Sangin. Uh, this bridge was going to be able to span the river. You know the old engineer bridges on the pontoons with a motor on? Yeah. Built yeah. it and it went out and just bottomed out. It was like, that ain't going to work, is it? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> whose idea was that? But hey. Um, but yeah, when we left Sangin that day, there were rounds rattling off the side of the Chinook and it was just what? We didn't think we were getting out, but the Chinooks came back, picked us up, and we managed to get out. Uh, so I thought, right, going into Sangin, this is going to be hairy again. Ran off the back of the Chinook to be met by a like, Royal Marine sunbathing going, right, this has changed a bit, hasn't it? Um, but yeah, by this point, there was still sort of conventional hand-to-hand fighting going on, but it, this is where the IEDs were starting to creep in uh, and the Taliban's tactics were changing. Okay. Um, any kind of like stories from that that you want to share? Uh, so, so, so I'd gone from, I don't know. So Lance Jack by now. Yeah, Lance yeah. Jack, so... I was, it was just a section of nine squadrons of lads that went into Sangin to help 
sort of just the I think we were attached to the Royal Irish. Yeah, Royal Irish. Um just to help them with patrols, any sort of combat engineering they needed. Um and yeah, I think six I think I did five months in Sangin and then got sent home in R and R. Again, it was it, it was kinetic still, but it was nowhere near as what it was on Herrick Four. Um okay. but guys were standing were guys were getting smashed by suicide bombers, IEDs. Um yeah, did that, and then I think by the end of Herakate, we did that big turbine move where we had to take the turbine up to the dam in Kajaki, um, and that was the end of that tour, really. I think we did that, got back, and didn't really do anything else after that. So, like quite a big job. Yeah, I mean, there was. I think the whole brigade push got stopped to get this turbine from Kajaki to um, no, from Kandahar to Kajaki. Um, I mean, I think there was over 120 vehicles involved, and. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a big publicised op, but it was pretty boring, to be honest. Nothing really <laughs> happened. It was 10 days just sitting in a Pinsgauer. Oh, was yeah, it? Yeah, oh. so... I mean, but again, you, you're you out there at the end of the day to try and improve the country. Yes. Uh, yeah. And to improve the country, they need power. And this this turbine's been sat in Kajaki for God knows how many years. It needs... Uh, in Kandahar, it needs to get to Kajaki. So that's what needs to happen. We're going to do it. Yeah. Um, and we did it. Got back to Bastion, and again, the next thing you know, you're on a beach in Cyprus, drinking beer again and putting the world to right. Uh, <laughs> I think I came home with a black eye that day. But, oh, there. Uh, yeah. Is that, uh, so that's the end of 2000? That's the end of 2008. 2008. That sort of ticked six months tour yeah. flew by, came back, um, and I sort of, I did have a moment where I sort of contemplated leaving, because again, at the end of the day, I wanted to join the police, but what was I then? 21, 22, I still thought I was a bit too young. Um, and yeah, I think... I went on. I went, by, by this point, I'd done all my sort of B one courses as well. So your, your your next level of combat engineer training, got it. Your A one. Um, so you kind of like topped out. Yeah, you the... topped out everything, and yeah. I, I ended up at the start of twenty ten going to going to gym and doing my JCC, so junior commander course, so you yeah. can get promoted to full screw. Did that, and then while I was there, I did the instructor assessment week to to work out whether you could go to gym and be a full screw and teach recruits. Um, I passed that and I thought, happy days, I'm going to go to Jib. When you're at Jib, you know, from the guys I know that have been there as full screws, you get given a calendar of what you're doing for two years. Yes. Whereas when you're in your regiment, you don't know what you're doing tomorrow. <laughs> you, you think you're planning your life. No, no, you're going to exercise next week. Oh, cheers, nice one. Or, But that, that's, the, that's the field army at the end of the day. Um, yeah, I, I passed the instructor assessment week and was told, yeah, we'd like to have you at Jib, but two, three, want you to go and do another tour. Okay. Um, and this is when I found out I was going to be uh, a two IC in a, a Royal Engineer search team. Okay. Uh, um, so again, by this point, IEDs just going through the roof in yeah. Afghanistan. So did you have to go and do a search course? Yeah. So on on Herakate, there were two search teams. Right. In the whole of Helmand Province, two Royal Engineer search teams. I think, I, th- I think it was on Herak thirteen we were going back on in twenty ten. So the winter tour, there were going to be twenty search teams. So. I mean, I know whole squadrons that were retasked to do just search. Okay. Um, wasn't very happy about it, but what can you do if you end of the day? This is what you're going to do. You've got to go and do it. So, yeah. yeah. When I did the course, we all passed. Um, it was about that time I found out I was going to be a dad as well. Was it? So, yeah. Um, that was a bit of a shock. But, again, you're happy. Wow. Life's changing. You're growing up, if you know what I mean. I'm, I'm going to be a full screw. I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to deploy again. Um yeah. Nice. So 
Uh, end of 2010, you said. So you did I search. was meant to deploy in September of 2010. Right. But Jensen, my little boy, he um, he he came along at the end of October. So I no, we were meant to put the start of October. So I got delayed going out by four weeks. Okay. Uh, so he was born, and then ten days after he was born, I deployed to Afghanistan um, to meet up with my team to find out. They had a new 2IC, so I was just stuck in Bastion for a couple of weeks. Like, oh, my God, pulling my fingers out. Right. Because when you're in Afghanistan, the one place you don't want to be is stuck in Bastion. It's great to be there for a day or two to get some R&R in, but it's just too many people walking around with Sergeant Major sticks and <laughs> it's just like getting told off because your hair's too long. It's yeah. not what you're out there for. <clears throat> um, and it's massive camp as well, isn't oh, it? <laughs> it's, uh, honestly, when we first deployed in 2006, I remember landing in a C-130 into the desert with firemen staggered on the runway, as in the Air Force firemen. I don't know what else they do, but um, <laughs> no disrespect. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, and there were literally, it was, the, the, the cook's tent was a, a Land Rover. The old Land Rover chef tents with the old trailer is the is the cooker. Yeah. One of them and like 10 tents in the desert. It was mental. <laughs> I mean, you can see in the distance a new camp being built, but, it was just like, wow. And by that time, by was it by 2010? I don't remember. It's the size of Reading, isn't it? Yeah, so... It's insane. Th- yeah, so much, yeah, it's the size of Reading because you had Bastion 1, Bastion 2, and then is it Tombstone, which was the um, American camp with the A&A? Yeah, that sounds um, about right. And yeah, I remember going to the American PX once and on a quad bike. It took you half an hour to get there. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? Um, but yeah, and no, I deployed... Spent about a month in Bastion, couldn't wait to get out. But again, be careful what you wish for. Um, finally got to Karnaka to meet up with my old search team. So the lad who replaced me got pulled out and I got sent in. Um, and yeah, I think I did. Got there working with the uh, with the Irish Guards um, with uh, Major Sanjay, brilliant officer. Loved him. He just wanted to go out and fight the Taliban all the time. It was brilliant. Um yeah, got there and did two and a half weeks. And then New Year's Eve 2010, I ended up deciding to stand on an IED. Okay. Do you want to yeah, yeah, share? Yeah, yeah, happy. I mean, I'll go into it. So, yeah, we were... Um, so, New Year's Eve 2010, we were going out on a on a dawn patrol. So, you're all there. The idea of this patrol was to go sort of a mile down a wadi, uh, leave a section of Irish guards in a compound with all their bombs, bullets, grenades, all that sort of stuff. So, the Taliban would fight them. And the rest of the village would get on with its normal daily sort of living. Um, so, yeah, we, we'd done a few of these ops where you'd go out to take over a compound. And funny enough, the fighting all took place over there. And the local village got on, got on with what it was doing. So, yeah, we're, I think there was a company of Irish guards and we were attached because we were going to clear the compound. Um, yeah, I remember ECM on, MVGs on, cocking your weapons, etc., checking each other over and... You're leaving the back gate in single file. Um, we sort of stuck to this main road, what dust road. Guy at the front's obviously got a metal detector. Um, and just following the silooms or the spray on the floor. Um, yeah, it was just, it was a, it was a really, I don't know why, it was an eerie morning. Something just didn't seem right to me. And obviously, in the distance, you can see the hills and the lights just coming over it, all the juice coming off the ground. Um, the dogs are barking, giving away your position. Um, and the, the local call to prayer came on as we were patrolling. And to me, that just sends like a shiver down your spine. It just, 
Yeah, it's just, it's something just didn't seem right that morning. And everyone says that. It seemed like that every morning, to be honest, but I don't know why. Um, but yeah, I'd say about 10 minutes into the patrol, 10, 20 minutes, and the front of the patrol was just a massive bang and a dust cloud came out of the ground. And you knew what had happened straight away. The guy at the front had stood on an ID, um, Lamin Manny. I don't know if you know him. I do know him. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, again, we all knew what happened straight away and we kicked into it. We we just went and found a field and started clearing it for a HLS. Um, we could see the compound we were going into, but we hadn't cleared it yet. So we, we get, I think the Chinook ended up landing in that compound anyway, but we cleared the HLS. It didn't land there. Um, and yeah, he got put on the Chinook and he was sent out and it was just right. He's gone back to normal. Um, and my job that day, I was doing a bit of emo, just clear some clear some walls so guys could get easy access into a compound. Um, blue one to get at. So we'd gone in the compound and then the far end, I uh, emoed a wall, so half a bar mine. I was a bit too close to that one. It blew me over. <laughs> uh, my ears were ringing after that. But yeah, did that. Um, and then the idea was to just walk out, pick a random point of a, it was a, a sort of main track and you never just pick a random point, search across it, emo another wall so the stores could come in to sort this compound out. Uh, so we're, I've got the two lads searching in front of me. They've searched up to the wall, put the charge on the wall. We've walked back through the safe lane, blown it. And as we've walked back over, I noticed all the white lines had gone off the floor that we sprayed. And I remember being, I remember being stood at the breach and I think... My team commander has been on the net to me and I've looked down and all the white lines have gone. I remember calling one of the boys back over to search in front of me and I literally took a step to my right to spray a line on the floor and boom, next thing I know, I was mid-air. Um, it all happened like in slow motion, being in mid-air and then landing and I couldn't breathe. It felt like something punched me in the kidneys really hard. I was like, what? I just couldn't breathe. Um, again, you knew something had happened badly, but I didn't know it was me at first. I didn't, I was in no pain whatsoever. I was, I was shock and adrenaline, like what's happened, right? Something's happened. I need to get up. I need to find out what's happened. And it wasn't to the two lads who were searching, jumped straight in the ditch. Not, they didn't search up. They just got in, tourniquets out straight away. And that's the minute I knew it was me. So for those who don't know, a tourniquet is the last line of defence in a catastrophic bleed. You've just got to get it on there straight away. All your training, get it on, pull it tight, get it done up, stop the bleeding. Um, I again, I couldn't. My ears were ringing. Even though I had the, um, even though I had the uh, issued ear defenders in, uh, I had my ballistic glasses on and everything. Um, dust in my eyes, ringing. But yeah, the boys were straight in there getting tourniquets on my legs. Um, I remember Stu, one of the lads, putting a tourniquet on my left leg. And I was like, Stu, Stu, don't worry about my legs. My bollock's still there. And uh, it, he's just put his hand straight down my trousers going, yes, mate, still as small as ever. I was like, nice one, <laughs> happy, laughing and joking. And that was it. Like I said, I was in no pain whatsoever. The boys, they were treating me. My, my team commander then came up. I, I had no idea how bad anything was. And I, I, don't, I didn't even realise he put a tourniquet on my arm as well. Okay. Um, and yeah, like I said, I was in no pain whatsoever. The only pain I was in was when they tried taking me back through the mouse hole I'd just done, the emo, and when the lads lost his foot in and dropped the stretcher. Oh, no. Um, but yeah, again, I, in my head, I think I know everything, but 
speaking to the boys afterwards, it was one of the ones where there was no screaming or anything. Everyone reacts differently. You don't know how you're going to react till it happens. I mean, I've heard guys screaming for their mums and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I was just laughing and joking. There goes my football career. I'll look at me short touring or whatever. I had no idea how bad it was though. Um, from the accounts I was told afterwards, my right leg was gone from the knee down. Um, my left leg had been stripped of flesh from the knee down to my boot. Uh, and my right arm, my hand was still there and my radius was still there, but the bottom of my arm had completely been stripped of flesh and muscle. Um, and it had to be amputated eventually when I got back to Birmingham. But yeah, like I said, I spent 20 minutes laughing and joking on the deck. I think I told the medic to F off at one point because she kept asking me for my zap number. And after the fifth time, just... <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, I was... I knew I was I knew I was in a position where the tourniquets are on. I'm still alive after five, ten minutes, which is good. Um, I've got some morphine in me. I've got my mates around me. I know there's a helicopter coming to get me. You felt... You felt... Uh, you felt safe. And the minute I heard the Chinook, I mean, you you can hear them from miles away. The distinct. minute I heard, distinct sound. The minute I heard that, I thought, I'm surviving. I'm going home. And I remember hearing it. And it, I remember I'm on the deck looking up at the sky and I remember it flying over the top of us. Um, I remember seeing the underbelly of it as well. And it landed behind. And then the boys picked me up, throw me on, and I'd just give a big airborne shout off the back. Um, and that was it. The boys are gone, and I just had a doctor in my face. It was one of the ones you ever seen the films where everything goes white, and it's just a face looking at you. I just remember seeing this doctor's face. No noise around me anymore, and I don't know. For one minute, it wasn't hurting. This, it just the pain just started the minute I got put on the Chinook. Um, and he, I remember him saying to me, you, "You're all right, mate. You're clearly conscious." I went, "It's really starting to effing hurt now. Can you just knock me out? Knock me out." And I, next thing I remember seeing a big needle, and then gone. Um, in an induced camera on the back of the helicopter. And what's the next thing you remember? Uh, the next thing I remember was a priest stood over me in Birmingham. <laughs> right. So you don't even remember the trip No, back? so from all accounts, uh, when I talk about, I spoke about Luke earlier. Yeah. Uh, they couldn't get a Chinook in for him for six hours or whatever it was. By this point on Herrick 13, they had the golden hour. So if they got to you and back to, like, if you, they got you from point of injury to the hospital within an hour, I think it was 90, I might, the figures might be off, but it's like 94, 95% chance of survival, whatever's happened to you. That's back to Bastion. Back to Bastion yeah. in the hospital, which at this point was the best trauma hospital in the world by far. Um, and I think I was back on the operating table within like 47 minutes of being injured. Wow. Um, again, this is only what I've been told. And... Um, I might not be too accurate with the figures, but it yeah. was quick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, don't remember any of that. I think I, from there, from being blown out to being back in the on the tarmac in Birmingham was about twenty four hours. So they they fly a plane out from the UK, pick you up, get you back. Um, and yeah, don't remember that. Don't remember being blue lighted from Birmingham from the plane to Birmingham Hospital to the new Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. Um, don't remember the. Yeah, the first things I remember of being in intensive care, the first time I woke up was to like a priest being stood over me. I just remember seeing the dog collar and go, wow, I'm in heaven. Um, then the next time was um, a nurse trying to do a functions test on your genitals to make sure it all still work. Really? Which would have been great, but he was bald in his <laughs> 40s and pulling on a rubber glove. I didn't have a clue what was going on, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Rape, what's going on? <laughs> and then, I mean... 
at this time, Jensen's mum, who I'm not with anymore, um, she was always, her and my dad were having to tell me all the time, like every time I was waking up, that my arm and my legs were gone. I was like, I can still feel them. You, you're making it up. I don't believe you. I can feel them. And reiterating it all the time because my brain just didn't, couldn't comprehend what was going on. The amount of drugs that are pumped into your system to kill off infections, everything. You, you didn't have a clue what's going on. I mean, the, the ketamine dreams were unreal. I mean, I, I fought intensive care because it was around. I thought it was a Millennium Falcon yeah. out of Star Wars. I thought there were like lightsaber battles going on. I thought the beds went outside at night time and you were a door gunner. I didn't, I was all over the place. I didn't have a clue what was going on. Um, and yeah, one day I was told I woke up and I'm trying to find my rifle because you, in a day you're on the dirt in Afghanistan. Now you're in a hospital bed in Birmingham and you haven't got this bit in between. I didn't know what was going on. That's quite, yeah, that's, that's, that's something, isn't it? Yeah, but again, I'm not the first who've gone through this. Plenty of guys have been through yeah, this as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, anyway. I mean, I, the first time they let me see Jensen was when um, they, I was being moved from intensive care to Ward 412, which is the military ward at, at QEHB. Um, and they didn't, I wasn't allowed to touch him, but he could come next to me in the in the little what they called the carry things that children go in. My mind's gone blank. Carry cot? Uh, yeah, that's, I don't know yeah. what they called the things that clip in the car, car seats. Car seat. Like the <laughs> child seat, one of them things. Um, and yeah, just, again, it was all just bits, bits of memories, not really knowing what's going on. Uh, and the first night I was on the normal ward, 412, um, I had a dream that my sergeant major had come to the end of my bed and told me to follow him. So I've somehow managed with no legs and an arm missing in a sort of comatose state, set up, crawled to the end of the bed and I fell out head first. I've opened up my arm again. Um, yeah, I was not in a good place, mate. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was back in surgery the next day. And I think I got an infection in my arm at one point. But over the next week or two, your drug load's coming down. So you're starting to become you again. Your mind's becoming yours again. <laughs> That first couple of days in the normal ward, I thought there were people in the ceiling trying to get me. I didn't... It's just paranoia. I thought my hospital bed was underneath a runway for some reason. I, again, I keep reiterating, you don't know what's going on. You're all over the place. Um, but yeah, drug load's coming down. You start to feel normal. Your bowels are starting to work again. That's emotional. Going to the toilet for the first time in two weeks. Wow. <laughs> I know ladies feel like when they're giving birth now, it is not pleasant. <laughs> but yeah, again, I managed to go to the loo for the first time, felt proud, then went to stand up, fell off the toilet, smashed my legs oh. on the floor. Um, managed to pull some boxer shorts on before you pull the orange cord just to get a bit of like... just it. I was all over the place, mate. Yeah. I didn't know what was going on. And to be honest, at that point, when you're falling off a toilet because you can't stand up and you're lying on the floor... And you have to get help back into a wheelchair. I didn't. I didn't know what I was. I, I'm, I was scared. I didn't know what I was going to do with life. I didn't know what life held for me anymore. That might be the point it hit you first time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, it was. This is a big thing for now. Is I've learned because of that to accept things. So for me, that first few weeks, I wouldn't say I was angry. I didn't accept that my arms and my legs had gone. Um, 
And it wasn't until a lad, a power reg lad actually, walked past my room while I was in hospital on prosthetic legs. I nearly fell out of bed pulling the orange cord to get him to get the nurse to get him back. Um, and he came and sat in my room and he had a, two prosthetic legs and an arm missing. And he sat and he talked to me for 10 minutes. And that was the minute then that I could accept my legs and my arm were gone because I could see where the next step was. It was getting on these things. Um, and I, I'll honestly say that the minute that happened was the minute I started. I had I had a I was on ground zero then. I'd gone I'd gone below. Now I was on the way back up. I knew where my baseline was, where I was starting. Um, and yeah, that's when you started. Right, I need to get out of this bed. So let's get in the wheelchair a bit more. As much as I hate wheelchairs, to me they're a set of handcuffs. You can't do anything in them compared to walking on prosthetic legs. Um, get to do some more physio, push to do more sessions, start getting fit again, stop eating crap food because you're happy to be alive. The amount of McDonald's I think I had in them first few weeks because, I mean, the hospital food wasn't the best. And when they're trying to get you to eat 5,000 calories a day, I mean, I'll have a takeaway as much as the next person, <laughs> but oh God, trying to eat 5,000 calories a, a day is a lot. I mean, the protein shakes they've given you, they were rats, they were horrible. But again, your body is just burning calories trying to, trying to heal itself right. so um so yeah i ended up doing six weeks in the qehb um and again you're getting better every week you're there um what's pain levels like Is pain levels you're on pain meds but they're nowhere near what you started when you first got there pain wise it was it wasn't pain as in like someone it, it, like you fall over and bang your elbow or something it was pain as in phantom pain so your brain is still trying to send messages to your feet and your your hands, etc., and your nerves and your legs are all messed up, and they're going, "Well, what do you want?" Or and it just ends up you just you're sitting there, and all of a sudden you'll just twitch, and your arms hurt, and you're screaming. Um, yeah, phantom pain was pretty bad, but yeah, pain wise, I was, I was, by the time I left, I was pretty comfortable. Okay. Um, I left the hospital, and they sent me. I went and lived in my dad's front room in Colchester for a week. Um, they put a hospital bed in there, etc. I took all his skirting boards out on my electric wheelchair because I didn't know how to use it properly. I, it's like me driving. I'm not the best. <laughs> just end up crashing into everything. But yeah, I spent a week at my dad's. Um, managed to get in the bath for the first time, which is quite nice. Won't tell any of the hospital staff about that, but managed to climb up the stairs on my bum, no. fall in the bath and just lie there for a couple of hours. It was great. Um, you didn't have it too hot, did you? <laughs> it was lovely but uh, yeah from there spent a week with my dad's and then went to Headley Court for the first time okay uh, so I'm just going to ask how did the, your family your dad how were they with what happened to you yeah um, I think everyone obviously shocked yeah but I don't know to be honest I I think I don't, you'll have to ask them yeah. I don't know obviously it's going to be shock and horror and, but they were there to support but you my and... dad was in New Zealand at the time was he? Okay. it was that winter in the UK where the snow had come in so the airports had shut and everything and um, I think he spent like a week trying to get to New Zealand he got there for two days and then I decided to get blown up so he had to come back um, yeah. but I, um, I I don't my ex-partner she reacted, she was brilliant, if you know what I mean. I can't fault her for anything. Um, she was there straight away with Jensen. I don't know what I put her through. My, I just remember seeing my granddad, he's no longer with me now, but his face the first time he saw me was just like, 
it was quite scary. But yeah, again, it's all that. There's nothing I can do about it. I've just got to move on. I can't. I can't be angry and sit here and go. Oh, I've, I'm so yeah. angry. No, if you do that, you're not going to go anywhere in real life. So it's all about just trying to. So the minute I got to Heli Court and you surround that place is unreal. You get there and there are literally robots walking around everywhere. There's guys with half their heads missing. It's just when you've been through the mincer like we most of the guys I know have, it's you you there is nowhere better to go. The minute you get there, you just want to get out of that wheelchair straight away. Yeah. You want to just smash yourself. You want to start fizzing. You want to get on prosthetic legs and you want to for me it was all about fitting back into society. Now, I I've not gone through what you've gone through, yeah, yeah. obviously, but I have been uh obviously injured and had surgery, etc. And then gone to Headley Court myself. And I'm gonna totally agree with you. It's a place where you feel accepted, you fit in, everyone gets you. They yeah. might not have the exact same injury, but they, they get what you're going through. Yeah. Right. And they're there to support you and it is, it's just a phenomenal place. Yeah, I, I mean I, I can't put it any other way that you get there and they're literally robots walking around. There's guys on prosthetic legs everywhere. Yeah. Um there's guys in fancy wheelchairs, there's guys walking around with my uh, what are they called? Um myoelectric hands on. Um I mean I, I felt quite lucky when you know when you see a guy walking around with half his head missing and he's got to wear like a boxing what they call the boxing guards around his head. Um it all puts you back into sort of perspective that everyone's different. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the amount of engineers that were at Headley Court, all the all the search teams were just getting blown up, weren't they? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's not just saying engineers with anyone that being injured. Everyone was there were lots of people being injured. But like I said, being in that situation, getting measured up for prosthetics for the first time, and literally within a week of being there, I'm still on a excuse me, I'm still on a set of check sockets. So you you're like a little lumpa lumpa walking around, and you're just walking up and down parallel bars, but you just feel alive again. And then two weeks later, you're sort of you're at five foot. And then within six weeks of being there, you're back up to six foot again. Well, 5'11", but I used to be six foot. They put me to six foot, I couldn't do it. They brought me down an inch and it was like, yeah, I've got this. Okay, that's uh, balance. Balance, yeah. Because yeah. you're too top heavy at the end of the day. Um, but I just got there and I just got in this full on, right, let's get fit, let's get fit. Because you've you've spent, what, six weeks sat in your ass in a hospital, um, sat at home, you just, you, you've gone from being this 24-year-old pretty fit lad in the desert to this mess sat in a wheelchair and the only thing you could do is go on to full-on, well, I just need to fizz. I just need to do stuff. You're happy to be alive as well. So yeah. you're, you're eating. I mean, the food at Headley Court back then was not the best. And so <laughs> blokes, it was the old Domino. Domino's man was there every night, if you know what I mean, at the old guard room. But you just felt, you, you were happy to be alive. You just You just wanted to smash yourself. I did that for a few months, going back and forth to Headley Court, walking again. But what I didn't do was listen to my body. So my legs, okay. stumps weren't, they weren't healed. My arm got an infection and that needed an operation. And yeah, from going from being in hospital to getting out to being, end up putting myself back in hospital, it was like, I need to slow down a little bit. So I did. I literally spent two years of sorting my life out. Unfortunately, me and my ex-partner split up during that time um, because, to me, getting blown up, it just sort of opened my eyes a bit more to the world. I I didn't have any patience for anything. I just wanted everything done now. Um, and 
did I make some rash decisions? Yes. Good and bad? Yes. But at the end of the day, you're all over the place. You don't know what's going on. Um, the Headley Court car park was like a bloody footballer's car park, wasn't it? Blokes getting <laughs> injured, getting money in the bank from your compensation. I oh, know, let's go and buy a Range Rover. Yes. Let's go and buy a, I don't know, one bloke had a Ferrari, I think, at one point. Yeah, Porsche, Audi. Porsches, I mean, <laughs> you do, you make silly decisions. But yeah. again, this all comes back to being happy to be alive. Yeah. It, that's all it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, I spent two years of sort of putting my life back together, sorting my house out. I mean, I got involved with people I shouldn't have got involved with business-wise, never mixed business and friends. I've realised that now. I have made mistakes, but you learn from them mistakes. Um, so yeah, I was, I was just happy to be alive. I, I sort of fizz dropped off a bit though, and you're sort of, you're boozing, you're going to gigs. You just, you just, I can't reiterate how happy you are to be alive. Yeah. You've been through this, this horrendous situation and you've come out the other side, you're walking again, you're driving, you're being a dad, you're going to watch, I don't know, the food fighters, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you, you're going out for dinner. And then one day you look in the mirror and go, you fat fuck. You've gone from this 24-year-old lad to this 26-year-old mess. You need to sort your life out. Um, not in the sorting your life out as in um, sort of housing, banking, all that sort of stuff, but you've sort of done no fizz for a year. You've... You've just enjoyed yourself. Let's. You, I found myself a bit lost. I needed the old carrot dangled in front of you. I needed. A, I needed a challenge in life again. Um, and this is where I first got involved with Help for Heroes, military charities, etc. Okay. I sort of kept myself to myself and not got involved with any of it. Um, but I ended up signing up to a charity bike ride from Paris to London, the Battlefield Bike Ride. Okay. Um, what year is this then? Twenty thirteen. Okay. So, yeah, two and a half years after I was injured. Yeah. So, yeah, so 2011, 12, yeah, two and a half years after I was injured. Did no training whatsoever. <laughs> I think the furthest I'd ridden was like 20 miles and a hand bike. So you lie on your back on the bike. You're literally on the road and you power it with your arms and you turn the cranks. Um, and the bikes are like three times the weight of a normal upright bike. Okay. Yeah, I signed up to do Paris to London and... When you're on the Eurostar over there, like 200 miles an hour, however quick it goes, Northern France looks flat. It's not, is it? It's, <laughs> it's up, down, up, down, up, down. I developed a symptom called hill Tourette's while I was out there as well. Anytime you hit a hill, it was F this. Oh, right. Yeah, this is. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I signed up for it. Help Heroes bought me my first bike and I wanted to raise the money back that, that they paid for it and I ended up doing that. I think I raised five grand. Um but yeah, did it. It was horrific. Honestly, that was harder than P Company. That was yeah. harder than anything I'd done before because I wasn't fit. I thought it was going to be easy. I thought it was just, I can ride my bike for a few miles a day. First my first day was 90 miles. Nine zero. Nine miles. The Nine whole thing me. was meant to be 350, but ended up being 420. <laughs> there was an ex-Garsman reading the map. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was just... Honestly, it was just, it was rats. It was horrible. The weather was crap as well. So you're just wet and cold all the time. Um, but yeah, managed to get into London and like onto horse guards. And it was one of the ones that did the old duty, Steve Redgrave. If anyone sees me near that bike again, they can shoot me. I, I was like, I'm not doing that ever again. Oh, yeah. Uh, went out, got drunk and that was it. That was the end of that. But no, two weeks later, I was, I was back in London watching two other injured lads, Justin and Steve racing hand bikes around London and I couldn't believe how many people they're watching. They were literally 
thousands upon thousands of people there watching disabled people ride bikes around London, literally around St. James's Park. Um, and seeing that, I was like, ah, I need to get this bike back out. I need to get into this. This is brilliant. Yeah. So I did. I spoke to my old ERI at Headley Court, who JP who works at Tedworth House now. Uh, and yeah, we formalised the plan, got myself a lighter bike and started training on the bike. Okay. So <clears throat> that was something to give you new goals, new challenges, get your fitness back. Yeah, and... I mean, I saw it not to race at first. I said to him, look, I'm not interested in racing, but I always found it hard trying to... I tried the running blades, but I don't know, it just didn't feel right. And to me, that was an unnatural movement. And I'd, I'd rather walk for an extra 10 years and run for a few. That's what I saw in my head at that point. Because um, with the blades, for anyone that doesn't know, I mean, yeah. you tell us, but is it you got to flick your legs out? Yeah, or? it's like helicopter movements. You, got, you, can't, you can't run through like normal people would it's like you flick your legs out and round and you need to speak to dave henson about that he's won a paralympic medal running so uh, true yeah maybe uh, he'll come on yeah well, i'll have a word of him um but yeah no that just wasn't for me and yeah way to find but i i never really had any sort of cv i could do i'd, I'd go for walks and things like that but it was never i used to love going running beforehand mm. i used to love just getting out and going for a run music in your ears and off you go um but yeah, this so cycling, it gave me a way to do some fizz where I could I didn't need to throw weights about. I didn't need to I don't know, try and adapt, reinvent the wheel. I could just get on a bike and go and do some fizz. Um and yeah, I started doing it and you could tell all the bikes got power meters and stuff in so you can tell on your Garmin how much effort you put in, etc. And the more you're doing it, the more you're watching your power going up and the faster you were getting and the better you were getting. I mean, I'm still finding hills horrendous. So in the day, I'm trying to get up a hill on a smaller muscle group anyway than a normal conventional cyclist, but I've only got one arm. So, I, I but in the, the day, that that was the hard bit. But the, the great bit was going downhill the other side. Yeah, I've never had an upright beat me down a hill before, so <laughs> right. it's great fun. Um, work hard, play hard, if you know what I mean. That's yeah, so I live life. Um, so yeah, I just, I just love riding a bike, I just got the bug straight away. Did you felt free? Again, like yeah, I mean, at first it was very apprehensive going out on your own because in the, the day you're right down on the road. Even though you got a flag on the back and a light, you just you can't really see what's going on behind you. You're not as visible as other people, so you'd always go with an upright cyclist. But I'd say after a few months, you just end up going out on your own. It's fine. Yeah. Once I learned how to repair a wheel for a puncher with one arm, that was a big thing for me. It was if I'm out on a blow, how do I change a wheel? But it was all adapting to. I don't know, use teeth, etc. If it don't work, throw it in the field. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I got around to changing tyres and stuff. And yeah, you always find a way of doing things. I hate it when people say you can't do something because then that's like, well, I'll, I'll show you. Yeah, find a way. Yeah, exactly. So t- 2013. 2013, say, 2014. 2013, 2014. Um, are you still part of the military at this point? I So yeah, so at this point, I'm sort of back and forth to Headley Court. Not as much as I was in the beginning. Um but yeah, I was due to leave at the start of 2014. But um, I ended up getting... So the end of 2013 was when I went to the Millies. I got nominated oh, okay. for a Millie. Yeah. Uh, so I did that bike ride for Paris to London and then someone nominated me for a Millie. And I was like, I'm not, I, don't, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to go. Wasn't interested whatsoever. But I was still serving at this point. So the army went, you're going. <laughs> I was like, do I have to? It's an order, you're going. All right, okay. You are paying my wages at the end of the day. So ended up going 
Um, went into London. I, like I said, I really wasn't interested. Um, went to Downing Street, met the Prime Minister, did all that sort of stuff, did a few TV interviews, and went to this award event. And I just thought, oh, it's just going to be one of the things. There's going to be a load of celebs there just trying to hug a injured soldier and feel sorry for you and stuff. And, yeah, didn't think anything of it. Um, my award came up and I ended up winning. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, what? Okay. And then I was given the award by Sir Bradley Wiggins. Uh-huh. So I was like, right, wow. <laughs> you just won the Tour de France. <laughs> and you're like one of the highest decorated Olympians ever. It's, gee, wow. Anyway, speaking afterwards, and he said to me, um, we'll go for a ride one day. And I thought, oh, I've met, a Headley Court, you meet loads of footballers. I'm not going to name any, but they said they were going to come and never show up. Or they're there just to have a photo with you and then they're gone. Um, I thought, oh, that would never happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, the start of February 2014, I was in Mallorca with Team Sky for a week. Nice. Around the whole team. It was just, wow. Just seeing how they worked as a professional unit. It's like a military unit. That guy's there to wash the kit. That guy's there to cook. That guy's there to fix the bike. The rider gets up, eats, gets on his bike, works his bollocks off, gets off, gives his bike in, and it goes through the process wow. again. It's just, I, I, wow. Um, and I remember... I did eventually get out with Brad and got on the bikes and stuff. And um, I, I said to him, how do you do this every day? How, what, he said, it's, when I get up in the morning, I said, oh, no, my exact question was, what do you do on the days where you can't be bothered? Because we all have them days, don't we? Yeah, where you yeah, just yeah. wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, I can't be bothered today. And he said to me, it's not about today. I'm riding this bike hard today because in four years' time, I need to win a medal by one second. And I was like, wow, that, it just completely blew my mind that his his mindset was and speaking to other cyclists as well so I've met met Cav a few times and top top boy the way they see and put everything on hold to make that bike go faster it just opened my eyes up to everything they are fully committed to riding that bike family this that distractions all on hold I'm riding this bike uh, and that opened my eyes I've said it two or three times now to being a professional sportsman okay. that's what you've got to do yeah it's brilliant um, I only brought that up because I nearly got kicked out of the army. Well, I got I got disciplined because I didn't tell the army I was going to Mallorca with Team Sky in, in the February. Uh, oh. And obviously I was still serving and it was in the Sun newspaper. Um, I just forgot. forgot yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I got back from there and I ended up getting an infection in my arm, which delayed leaving for a couple of months. Or was it my leg? I had a burst in my leg, which is a, like a pocket that fills a fluid under the skin. It just exploded. So I had to get some more surgery on that. Um and yeah, so I eventually discharged in June 2014. Okay, yeah. It's a weird day, though, isn't it? Giving your ID card in. and It is. Yeah, driving, driving out of Civvy, giving all your vehicle passes back and stuff. And But yeah, I mean, to me, at the end, I, I knew I was going to be out anyway. I'm sure you were the same. You're going to get medically discharged or whatever. It, it, it was just a normal day. It was just weird giving that bit of plastic in, mm. knowing that's been your life for the last 10 years. Yeah. And thinking, what what's it going to be like now to transition back? Because you got to transition back to the Civvy Street somehow. Yeah. Um, and for yourself, I mean, I hadn't worn a uniform for three years after being injured, so I didn't, I didn't miss that. But looking back now, I mean, we were chatting earlier about the military. I do miss the military. Mm-hmm. I don't miss the uniform and the bullshit and stuff like that. I miss the boys. Yeah. And going on tour. Yeah. And. Just working as a unit, working as an eight-man team to complete a task or assault a position or whatever. Yeah. Um, 
just being around the boys because I have I've suffered I've got in trouble a few times with my sense of humour outside of the military because it's not the same as Civic Street. You can't say what you'd say in the military. So yeah, it just is what it is. But again, it's that accepting. The minute you accept, you're not in it. You can move on in life. Mm-hmm. So this is 2014. 2014. You're handing in your ID card. You're starting to transition back to Civic Street. So what what do you do now? Are you turning into a professional athlete or are you... Um, well, I sort of I'd sort of made the commitment then to ride the bike. So Stephen Justin, the two lads I spoke to about earlier, had been signed by British Cycling in their development squad and they were flying and it was sort of chasing them, if you know what I mean. It's like, right, I need to... I need to... I want to be where they are and then I want to push... But I had a bit of a setback. So the classification from speaking to all the British cycling coaches, they're like, you're going to be a H2. You're going to be a H2. You're going to fit into a uh, this classification. You're going to be brilliant. I went for my classification with the classifiers and I walked in the room and they looked at me and went, you're here for hand cycling? Yeah. Okay. And they just didn't have a clue. I ended up, I ended up being classified H3 which was pending, so I'm racing guys with two arms. What, could you explain that for so, people that don't know the class? Oh, so so Paralympic, all Paralympic sports have got different classifications. Um, and there's lads I speak to, it's, Paralympic sport is all about, it's a niche. You've got to find that classification where you fit just into it. So if they had, oh, I, I remember reading something somewhere about, if for swimming, just Paralympic swimming, there's nine classifications, I think. If they had one for every injury, it would take years to do these events. So they have to fit it in niches. Um, and it's all about finding where you just fit in. So I'd gone into this classification. So people are sort of paralysed from sort of under your sternum up, but they've still got two fully functioning arms. Okay. So, so that, that's a H3. That's H3. Right. So H2 is where you have grip issues. Okay. I can't grip on this side. So how can't I fit in this classification? But... In the day, they made a decision. I thought, Do you know what? I'm just going to race. So I started racing in the UK. Um, I was doing all right. I was losing weight. That was the big thing. I was losing weight. I was getting fit. Uh, I was getting power- more powerful. But the more powerful I was getting on the bike, the quicker the arm was coming off. Because at the end of the day, I've got a prosthetic arm that's held on by a bit of silicon. And you're trying to put power through a crank. It just it just wasn't working. Um and it, I, that really got me down because you can see yourself getting stronger, but you were being held back by a bit of equipment that wasn't your fault. I mean, I went to private prosthetic centres to get it done. And even to this day, I'm still struggling to keep an arm on whilst racing. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, 2014, I think I went out to Italy and raced out there. That was great fun. Um, yeah. Just, just that for, is that? That was just off, that was racing with British cycling but not for them okay so you weren't signed for them but you could go and race and, okay. and stuff and yeah that was 2014 um, yeah finished that year went to Bali for a holiday and the minute I got back I was straight into right training mode everything got put on hold uh, family when I say put on hold I don't mean literally don't talk to them anymore but are we going to have dinner tonight no I'm calorie counting I'm doing everything properly uh, yeah and then went into it was 2014 the Invictus Games as well. Yeah, 2014. That was the first Invictus Games, yeah. First Invictus Games, 2014. And again, I was overweight then. And that course at, what is it, Lee Valley Park, it's just up, down, up, down. And I'm I'm not the best on hills, I'll admit that. So you you signed up for yeah, Invictus? Yeah, I mean, or? by this point, my other half, Anna, 
she was working for Help for Heroes and she was, are you going to sign up for this? And I was like, oh, it's just going to be a big sports day where civvies are going to feel sorry for you and hug a hero. And that's all that goes through my head. I don't want to be seen as a charity case. I don't want to be seen as, oh, look at him, he's an ninja soldier. I just want to be seen as a normal person. Um, and I think quite a few lads are a bit apprehensive about signing up, but Anna managed to convince me and went through the trials, got selected, um, and yeah, tipped up in London and one the next minute you're in the garden of the American Embassy watching the Foo Fighters. Yeah, there's that, only a hundred people there. It's that, like, what is this all about? That was quite crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, and the first day was the athletics, and I went to watch that, and there was like seven thousand people there as well, wasn't there? It was, yeah. This is mental. Um, yeah, did the cycling, um, went into it, and I won a bronze in a time trial, um, and then I came fourth in the road race, but. I just happened to won a medal. But then yeah. when you, you a few days or weeks later, my coach sat down with me and we got the results out. And he showed me that the guy who won the time won the time trial beat me by like a minute. It was only like a mile long time trial. It was he he was rapid. And in the road race, he'd lap me. And oh, he was right. he was like, right, so what are you gonna do about it? It's like, well, I need to lose weight. We formulated a plan and we just started training. Um weight fell off, bike was going faster, I was feeling better. Um yeah, and I went into 2015 fit. Yeah. The fittest I've been for a long time, eating properly, not drinking, um, fully focused on riding the bike. And I started racing in the UK. I won a few races in the UK, um, raced in Europe a few times. And yeah, I went and did the Battlefield bike ride again in 2015. So Paris to London. Um, and it was so much easier was when it? you're fit. <laughs> well, I was saying that the first day we uh, got there and I ended up being at a bar with a load of people having a few drinks. Um, social. Social right? drinks, yeah. Yeah, yeah, social. But this is just a week to not go and ride your bike fast, but just to go and enjoy riding your bike. Yeah. You can go and do 50, 60 miles a day, ride your bike. And yeah, the first day I ended up playing, me and another lad would like... We did the the whole morning and went, oh, let's just get to the hotel and have a beer. So we started playing hunt the person in front of you. So you see a cyclist, you chase them. Overtake them. Next cyclist, chase them. Um, and, yeah, I've hit this hill and I'm coming down a hill and I didn't see the gravel warning sign on the side of the road. Um, and as I'm going down the hill, I just lost control. The, the front wheels hit a bit of gravel and I've lost control of the bike, which has flipped it, smashed my head, knocked myself out and rolled down the road a few times. Like brand new Rafa cycling kit on as well, really expensive stuff. Ripped it all to bits. Ended up honestly, I've I've got a picture of me sat on the side of the road like a, a blood everywhere. And yeah, thankfully I went down on the right side, so the prosthetic arm took all the impact. Um, but yeah, that was a bit of a bad crash. But my helmet saved my life basically, where I've gone smash into the into wow. the tarmac. But yeah, got back from that. Ended up having to be sort of casivacked home. Um, well, Anna got the boat out and come and got me and brought me home a bit dishevelled. Um, but yeah, went in to see my surgeon straight away and she went, right, or he at the time, Mr. Dunn said, just don't ride your bike for three weeks. Trust me, if you ride your bike, you're going to take all the skin off your back again because you're lying on it. Just sit off your bike three weeks. And I did. I'd obviously been training, I'd smashed it, crashed. Took three weeks off, got back on the bike, and I was fine again. Loved really? it. Started racing, training, um, and that led me into 2016, uh, which is the next Invictus Games, wasn't it, in Orlando? Yeah. Um, yeah. 
started training for that. And I made the decision. I'd like things are starting to pop up at home, like distractions. So I decided to start of 2016. I took myself away. I drove out to Mallorca and just spent three months out there training on the bike, dropping the weight, getting fitter, flying. Literally, I'm doing mountain climbs now. Um, still not very quick going up the hills, but you're getting up to mountains, descending, loving life, just riding the bike. And then, yeah, ended up going out to Orlando in 2016. And so, how did you find trials? Trials, but, I, I smashed it. I beat you, everyone. You yeah, were training. So yeah, hard. I just, I, I didn't want to be big headed, but other than, I don't think any other hand cyclist. Steve Arnold didn't go because he was racing BC. So yeah, I smashed the trials. Yeah. Um. Had a. Did I? Yeah. So I, I basically I flew. A mate of mine was having osseo in. Australia in in the January and he didn't have a lot of family so I flew out there and saw him uh, for a week and then I flew back just for the trials landed at like five in the morning got my car with a bike and hammered it to Bath got there just before signing signed on <laughs> and then got out and just smashed everyone on the track and got in the car and fell asleep and yeah found out I'd been selected and stuff um, and yeah went out to Orlando and got into it looked at the start sheet and the guy who beat me the year before or two years before the French guy saw he was there I was like he's not beating me this time I'm, I'm going to smash him um, yeah went into the time trial and I absolutely buried myself I think he beat me by one second I was a bit gutted oh. but it's better than the minute he beat me oh, for yeah. a few years beforehand yeah. uh, went into the road race and I thought he shot off at the start and I was like right okay I had me and another guy from the GB team were working together and we pulled him back um, and yeah hit the final corner and I thought I've got him but he just got his front wheel in front on the final oh. corner and yeah by that point my arm was literally hanging on for dear life because it was in Florida it was boiling um, yeah and he beat me by half a bite length on the on the finish but again he'd lapped me two years before so so you got silver there so I got two silvers nice um, and then yeah while I was there they said do you want to have a go at anything else while you're out here so I thought, oh, I'll have a go at rowing. How hard can it be? Indoor rowing in Florida when it's boiling. What is that? It's just mad going into that that hall, wasn't it? And uh, they had the big cinema screen up, so the Concept 2s are all lined up, the rowing machines. And you just go for it, didn't you? It's like, honestly, four minutes max effort. Four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> four minutes max effort. It don't sound hard, but it is nails. Yeah. It's honestly... I, I just saw my boat was in front and I just kept going, kept going, kept going. And I think by the end of it, I didn't have a clue what was going on. There were three cinema screens in front of me and I, I was all over the place. But I fell off the bike, off the rowing machine to be told you'd won a gold medal. I was like, what? Oh, you did? Yeah. Nice. yeah. So, um, yeah, I remember the BBC reporter coming up to me and going, so rowing's your passion, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> How long have you been training for it? She's a bit shocked when you said, well, I only got on a rowing machine for the first time yesterday. But, but it just goes to show that the effort I'd put in the training, I was obviously in good shape. And yeah, I went back on and did the one minute sprint after that. I won another gold medal. So four, really? me four medals in one day. Wow. Um, but yeah, for me, the Invictus Games, it wasn't obviously you like winning medals, but it, it wasn't that. It was being round guys who've been through the mincer with you. Um, and it was a social afterwards, going to watch your mates compete in different events you weren't competing in. Um, and just the public's reaction to you. Because when you first send you don't know how people are going to react. Yeah, yeah. But they just treat you as normal, and it was great. Yeah. There's no judgment, is there? No. So. Uh, apart from when you get kicked out of bar at 
Midnight. <laughs> we don't, we don't talk about that. <laughs> Golf buggy's going missing, but there we go. <laughs> So that's 2016. 2016. Uh, you've had a couple of years out of the military. Um, you're kind of, I, I don't know, your goal of being a pro athlete, pro cyclist is, yep. is on track. It's going well. Yeah, um, yeah, it is. I mean, got home from there and it was, you knew the Evictus game was going to be in Toronto the year later. And I, my whole mindset was, I'm going to beat the French guy. I've got to beat him. Okay. I cannot lose to a Frenchman again. So um, you wanted to get back and to training you yeah so to I got back in training selected again I flew home early from Invictus in Orlando to race in the UK uh, got back race did alright um, yeah I think I did a couple more races in Europe that year or one or two I can't remember but yeah did alright um, I was just having massive issues with the arm right just trying to get it to stay on during races I mean at one point we can contemplate just super gluing the liner on um <laughs> Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's silicon. When there's fluid in there, I've spent a lot of time working with prosthetists who make the arms and stuff, and we were trying everything. But it, no one had had one of these arms made before. So for pulling, because yeah. hand cycling is push-pull, 50-50. But the minute you start hitting the hill, it's more pull, and that's when the arm was coming off. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was just getting me down. and Not getting you down, it's just frustrating. It's just fuck's sake, yeah. I'm, I'm catching these guys. I'm doing well, but I'm being let down by a bit of carbon fibre on my arm. Um, and if it stays on, you might do that. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're scared to put in that little sprint because you don't want that to just, you can feel it going and in your head. That's it, you've lost the race. That was my mindset. The minute that started going, that I'm done. Index. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but again, you try not to let it get to you and you're trying to carry on training, hoping that you're going to find a solution to to what the issue is so yeah that was the end of 2016 start of 2017 um i was full train mode get get on a bike riding keeping fit um and yeah sort of that's when i heard about the race across america the ram okay um, so in 2012 a, a team of eight injured lads four hand bikes and four upright bikes uh did the race across america um I remember being at Headley Court when they were doing it and I remember all the ERIs talking to each other and the physios, how well they were doing. Um, and they did it, I think they did the three, it's 3,140 something miles or whatever, over 180,000 feet of climbing from Oceanside in California to Annapolis, which is just north of Washington. And I just wanted to do it. I heard about it. I heard they were going to do it again, Help for Heroes. And I was like, I'm in. Everything else. Invictus just went, gone. That's gone for me. Um, I spoke to Anna. I said, look, I've, I want to do this. Are you going to back me? And she always backs me. I just, you have to ask the question, don't you? Yeah. But I knew I was going to be away a lot. So to train for it again, I took myself to Mallorca, smashed it, fitness, all threshold work. So it's all short, sharp, 20-mile pulls because the end of the day, the Ram is a, it's a time trial from one side of America to the other. Only one of you has to be on the road at any time. Okay. But it's a relay. It's a relay. So relay all the way across America. Um, Four-man team, do you say? Eight-man team. Oh, eight-man team. So it's like being in the arm. It's in your section again. Got it. You're eight of you working together to smash a, t- smash a goal. Um, so it's going to be four hand bikes and four uprights again. Um, and yeah, the only guy who had done it before was Joe Townsend, uh, who's a Paralympian. He's just nails. Uh, his nickname's Google me, if you know what I mean. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. Honestly, that was it. Everything else went on hold. Went out to Mallorca, trained for two or three months, got back, did the trials. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, found out that the week of we went to France and did a week in the Pyrenees to like confirmatory training to see if you got the space. And I just went man down. I was so ill, just throwing up everywhere, like hot, cold, 50 degree heat. And you stood there in a rab jacket, like I'm cold. What's going on? Um, and I thought I'd blown it. I didn't have a clue. I thought I'm, I'm not going to get selected now. But fortunately, I was selected. Um, and yeah, went out to America. And honestly, I loved every single minute of it. It's nails. It's yeah. no if, buts, or maybe. It's nails. Because it's, we broke the two-man team, the eight-man team into two four-man teams. So you'd spend half an hour on the road. Then you've got an hour and a half in the back of a van. Then you've got to get back out half an hour, hour and a half. Honestly, it's just getting yourself going again every time. Yeah. But once you got into the routine of it, I mean, lack of sleep's one thing, but you've done that in the military for so many years. So it's just non-stop until you get to the other non-stop. side. Non-stop. The JP Singh was, who ran it, the train does not stop. If we lose a rider, he gets sat on the side of the road with a support staff and the train keeps going. Um, the, whole, the whole goal was to do it in under seven days. So 3,143 miles it was in under seven days. Um, or seven days. I mean, yeah, we, we got out there and everyone was fit. The team was all right. I mean, a few issues with people, but once you got on the road and you just rode your bike, you just you didn't want to let the team down, so yeah. you're on there. I knew I had to average 20 miles an hour every time I went on the road. So 10-mile pull, 20 miles an hour, let's go, if yeah. you know what I mean. Half an hour's hard work. Um yeah, and the way they structured it was you'd never try and put a handbike on a steep climb because your, your speed just drops massively. But then when you've got a massive descent, chuck the handbike down it because it's so much quicker than an upright bike. So there's tactical stuff Oh, yeah, as well. it was brilliant. Um, I mean, both the two teams within our team had different tactics, but you can't fault people in that situation for how they want yeah. to do it. But yeah, I mean, it's mad. You start in like California... You climb out, then you drop into Death Valley, the desert. Yeah. And then it's, I don't know, Monument Valley, where all the, and then Kansas, which is just a straight road, 300 miles. Colorado, Missouri, where we nearly got shot. Um, we parked on someone's drive to do a change, and he came out and kicked off. He's like proper, like, angry American. Um, but yeah, that was mad. But yeah, eventually got to the other side of America, and yeah, we did it in. Between the eight of us, 14 arms and nine legs. We did it in six days, 12 hours and 36 minutes. Nice. I mean, they nice. chucked a 100-mile diversion in as well, and the last two days were into, the last two days were literally into a block headwind from oh. this storm coming off the Atlantic. But do you know what? It was just great. Finishing it, just the emotion and being part of that team, yeah, it was awesome. great. Awesome. Loved it. What time of year was that? That was summer, uh, July, June or July in 2017. Yeah. Um, yeah, brilliant. Loved it. Honestly, just two days afterwards, just enjoying yourself, letting your hair down. Um, I'd do it again tomorrow. Would do it again tomorrow. Brilliant. Loved it. That sounds so good. But as you say, hard work. Yeah, um, work hard, play hard. We played yeah. hard afterwards though. So <laughs> Fantastic. So that's 2017. Um, what, what kind of was the plan going forward from there? Um, um, you know, you've you done a few Invictus. Uh, you met some massive cyclists, yeah. like professional, and you've just gone across the whole of America with seven other people and smashed that. So Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I sort of, I'll be honest, I got back to America and I found myself a little bit lost. Um, not lost. You ever see old pictures of someone sort of in the middle of a crossroads where you're in the middle and you've got like 
different directions of I'd put so much off in my life um, by just focusing on riding this bike and I just needed a break. I just, I, I decided I got back and I went back to America straight away because Anna was out there working. Um, so I flew back to America and I just see her and yeah, and see other mates and stuff. And I got back from that and I didn't want to get on the bike. It was just like, it went in the garage and I left it. Um, yeah, I just started going about doing normal things again. I was doing a house up as well at the time. So I needed to spend time on that. Uh, being a dad to Jensen started, I, I, done my coaching badges in football literally the first two years after being injured and so I went back into coaching spending more time with him and stuff and just just doing normal stuff yeah. that I'd put off for so long I, I got involved with a, another charity called Debt Therapy and I went and did my I must admit I got married in the middle of all this at some point uh, if I forget to put that in there she'll kill me <laughs> but yeah 2016 got married and we were on a honeymoon and I I went scuba diving out there and fell in love with it straight away um, ended up doing my open water dive course in the Maldives. Honestly, I, the minute I got my head underwater, got buoyant, and sort of had a, an inkling of what I was doing. Wow, different world. Um, it is, yeah. It, it's just unreal. Um, and yeah, so I did that, got back. So, start of 2017, a mate of mine was involved with debt therapy. He said, Why don't you come on the courses? And I was like, All right, I'll try that. Went away in October 2017. and went out to the Red Sea with that therapy and did my advanced open water course out there and my deep course. Um, I loved it. Honestly, just getting in there, getting buoyant. I'm terrified of the ocean. I've always been terrified of the ocean since I was a kid. I watched Jaws. Everyone says it. But honestly, if I can't touch the bottom, I didn't like it. But when you're out there, you're down at 40 metres or wherever you are doing your deep course, just brilliant. Just love it. Yeah. It's, just, it's, it's Honestly, it's I love it. I'm still terrified because I think something's going to come and eat me. But yeah, at the end of the day, when I'm in a black wetsuit and I've got no legs on, I'm about four foot tall. I look like a seal, if you know what I mean. And <laughs> sharks eat these seals. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I love diving, but I also um, by putting the bike off, I ended up getting involved with a company going away doing casualty simulation work. So you go all over the world, uh, a company called Casualty Resources, and you you literally you're playing a casualty on the floor and you're being treated by medics, military medics all over the world. And I, I genuinely love it because at the end of the day, you're critiquing them after they've treated you. And if the tourniquets aren't done up properly and stuff, you just start wobbing. You've got DS there watching you, um, telling you what to do and stuff. But I just feel like I'm giving back to medics and helping them train. Because when I did my training, you go in a room with your mate on the floor, just pretend his leg's missing. Yeah. yeah but I can still see it. Yeah, but just pretend it's not there and show me how you put a tourniquet on. Now you're lying on the floor, full silicon nut. Makeup artists have done an amazing job on you, and you're squirting blood at someone. I've been in countries where tier one operators have come in the room, looked at you, and gone, "Shit!" and started backing out the room. If yeah. you know what I mean, yeah. not knowing what to do, and the DS are throwing them back in, and yeah, afterwards they're panicking and they're saying, "Thank you." Yeah, um, no, it's true because <laughs> I was training for Iraq in 2008, and we had. Uh, some were actors, some were ex-military, some were uh, had car accidents. And just like that, they were pretending that they'd yeah. just been blown up. And yeah, you had to jump on, stick your knee in their groin and yeah, stick the tourniquet. Yeah, that's still I was thinking about that afterwards. But yeah. but then once it's all over and they're sat in the back of the Land Rover and you're having a chat and it's it's quite surreal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, some of the best training because of people like yourself helping. 
Yeah, and again, it. I mean, fortunately enough, I get a military pension now, so I don't need to work. But I like, I like, I don't like sitting on my backside doing nothing. Um, and I, I just enjoy doing it. Even the first time I did it, you're cold, you're wet, and you're, you're miserable. But at the end of the day, it's it's good fun as well because yeah. you're in the after the jobs are all finished, you're having a drink with these guys and girls and whoever and the team you've worked with, and it's just the social again. Yeah. And that's, again, I refer back to what I miss about the military, is the social. So, yeah, you get that little bit back by doing things like that. Uh, so let's quickly go back to, to diving. Yeah, uh, sorry, I jumped ahead no, That's fine, that's fine. It's, it's all good. Because um, I, I did scuba diving as well. I was, was Bizak rather yeah. than Paddy, because I'm guessing you're Pad- yeah, Paddy. Paddy. Yeah, yeah. Paddy. I've, so you've done the advanced and the deep, and yeah, in 2018, 2018? Yeah, twenty. Oh, so 2017, I went out to Truck Lagoon. No, 2018. When did I move here? 2018. I went out to Truck Lagoon with depth therapy as well. So you're diving all the old, uh, the Japanese wrecks from World War II. Nice. And that's that was taking me out of my comfort zone. I was trained to do it, but it was one of them, I've never done this before. This is, it was, but again, you're in a situation where you're not comfortable, but your training kicks in. You know what you're doing. You know what yeah. your skills and drills are. And it's the first time I ever came across a shark. Really, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was on a wreck called the Shinkoku Maru. It's at about 25 meters. And I mean, the, 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 the life on this ship, it's just amazing. I've never seen so many fish anywhere. It, it, wow. It's just, and then this, we're about to come around the bridge of the ship, pop off, come around and come back on. And it's only a six foot grey reef shark swim past, but it's still a <gasps> moment. Yeah, what the was that? Um, but then again, you just watch it circling around the boat and it's not interested in you whatsoever. Yeah. You go, right, okay, done that now. Um, it's like the first time for something scary yeah, yeah. and experiencing it and realising it's, it's Well, I right. didn't realise while I was on my first ever try dive in the Maldives, my instructors give me the look over there. And I've just gone, yeah, yeah, I can't see a thing because my mask fogs up. I'm too scared to let any water in to clear it. <laughs> but um, it, was just, it was a big, big reef shark swimming past as well. But yeah, yeah and I've, I, I, I had to overcome this fear of sharks. So last year, so I'm going on to 2019 now, uh, last July, I signed up to go on a, it's called Get Hammered. It's run by a civic diving company in Crowthorn, uh, dive crew. And yeah, it's just, I thought, I've got to do this. I've got to, I've got to get in the, in the water with these things properly. So I signed up to do it, really apprehensive, went out there. All my mates know I'm scared of it and they're taking the mick and winding me up. So inside, you just, you're putting on a brave face, but inside you're going, what is this all of it? <laughs> um, so yeah, got in and we, where did we dive? Daedalus, I think it was. Won the reefs out in, in the Red Sea, so you're on a liverboard. Got in, you're on the ribs, bloody current's massive. And as an amputee, current is a nightmare when, you, when you're diving because you just don't go anywhere. Um, when I was doing my advanced course I was on a side mount this is going back 2018 we've gone out down the south reef of where we were staying in Egypt and you do your turn around at a third to head back so I've t- right up turn around yep turn around go back and just hit this current no and way. I literally exited the water with 10 bar left in one cylinder oh. just fighting this current to get back to the beach it's horrible. Shallowing up, getting into the reef, nothing was working, if you know what I mean. Uh, it was a proper oh moment. Yeah. But yeah, got back to the beach after that. And fortunately, it was just me and my instructor on that. And he said, I was getting to the point where I was going to push you at one point, but well done. And it just shows you what currents can do. Um, so yeah, I, me and currents, any amputee with currents, because you, you've got no fins to kick with. It's just your yeah. arms. Um, 
And if you're working harder, you're burning more gas, so you, yeah, it ends up being a not the best dive. Drift diving, on the other hand, though, we just get in and let the current take that's you. Good. That's brilliant. That's good. But yeah, back onto back at Daedalus. So we're in, we're down at 30 minutes, sat there. The reef, you can just see, you're out in the blue, and then all these hammerheads start coming up, and it's like, oh, wow. It's a wow, but at the same time, it's a brilliant but scary. And But again, they just sit there and circle you for a bit, and they're not really interested. Um, it's just an amazing experience. Um, went in later that afternoon, and a lone hammerhead just came swimming gently as far as we are away from each other. Yeah, I, I'm still scared of them, but it's massively helped. More uh, confident. Yeah, more confident. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, diving, I haven't worked out, I haven't dived for a year now, but that's yeah. because of what happened in Mallorca last September. We'll touch on that in a bit if yeah. you want. If yeah, you want. yeah, yeah, happy. Um, but I just want to ask, how was it being a triple amputee doing scuba diving? Because that's a whole different way of learning yeah, I mean, to dive. When I first, well, I remember going into, on my honeymoon, going into having a beer and cement for lunch in the Maldives. And then oh, there's a dive centre over there. Let's go and look. Walked in there and the head instructor just looked me up and down, a guy called Torsten going, okay, this could be interesting. Uh, and he shouted to his assistant, book me out tomorrow. And he spent all day with me. And really? It was just trying to work out how to get me buoyant and yeah. weights in different positions and stuff. And yeah, I mean, Anna came in with me. <laughs> She got in, had a panic attack. First time I've ever seen a, a, someone climb a ladder with fins on as well to get out of the boat, <laughs> get back on the boat. Wow. She was not happy. I was like, uh, are you happy now on the boat? Yeah. Can I go in? Yeah, you crack on. I'm not going, all right. Went in, went down. Brilliant. Loved it. And we spent a lot of time just trying to work out because I kept going in and just ended up standing up. So it's trying to find a way to get me, get the trim yeah. sorted. Yeah. Um, because as you mentioned earlier, no fins. No fins. So it's just propulsion, breaststroke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or drift diving. Get or in and let diving. the current take you. Yeah. Um, have you ever tried one of those motors? No, I have I have seen guys try one, but yeah. I haven't yet. Um, don't, I, I don't know if that would work. It's just an idea. I ended up like a stingray or something under yeah, the water. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> no, I haven't tried it. So it took you a few dives to get used to balance and stuff? Yeah, or? once... Once we worked out, getting the trim sorted, once I got buoyant and my trim sorted, everything else just came. Okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, I spent the last four days of my honeymoon literally diving. Yeah. Just in the water. Was Anna all right with that? Anna was, she was sunbathing, reading okay. books, so she was more than happy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I can't sit around and do nothing for one or two days is great and then you get fidgety and oh, I need to yeah. go and do something. So, yeah, she was happy I, I, and I ended up passing my... Um, my open water out there and yeah got the bug straight away nice nice um have you become an instructor as well or? no so i've done in 2018 i went back out to egypt with debt therapy again um and i did my rescue course uh okay. so i've done the rescue diving course paddy one um and for my oh, the the best thing i can the way i can explain debt therapy is they will teach you the, the paddy standard this is how an able-bodied person would do it now you work out how you're going to do it. And they'll obviously help you and tip, give you tips, etc. But for my assessment, I had four master instructors watching me. Really? Because no triple had ever passed the course before. So if one, I think they were just covering their own backs as well to make sure I passed. But I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a perfectionist, but I wasn't happy what I'd done. So I went back in and did it again to be told after, and I nailed it the second time. But the first time I did it, they said you'd passed already. You didn't need to get back in. But because I'm a stubborn 
like I had to get back in and do it again. Yeah. But yeah, that, that was a bit weird having four master instructors stood there watching you when usually you'd have one. Um, and even after it, the, the guy who runs Depth Therapy posted a a video on their Facebook page and it's me doing the, the lift of an un, unconscious diver off the seabed up to the surface, so slow ascent, uh, and I nailed it. But someone put in a comment bar, well, he hasn't got a snorkel on. No, it's in my pocket. <laughs> I always carried it in my pocket because yeah. it gets in the way. You've only got one yeah. arm. It's just like some people just... They, they couldn't believe that I'd done it. Yeah. Um, I didn't do it to be the world's first triple amputee rescue diver. I wanted to do it because people said I couldn't do it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I can't, I, all I can say is thank you, Step Therapy, for yeah. putting me through it. And, uh, and yeah, um, did that and then did the shark diving and that's the last time I dived. But, no, I need to get back in the water soon. But it's worth saying that again. You're the world's first triple amputee to pass the... Paddy rescue course. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, but I mean, that that doesn't do anything for me. It's no. just, I you just want to be in the water and enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, honestly, I just yeah. love diving. I, yeah. If I could go and fall in the water every day and get wet, I'd, I'd do it. Yeah. Some guys like being up in the mountains. Some guys like skydiving. And I tried, I tried doing the old skydiving, but only having one hand, you need two for the shoot. You could get stuff made, but in the end, it was just like, I don't want to be strapped to anyone else. I want to do it myself. So with yeah. diving, I can get in there. Obviously, you buddied up, but yeah, I, I miss diving. I haven't dived oh, many years. In fact, since my hip hip replacements, uh, and really because since being a civvy, I can't afford it. Yeah, fair one. <laughs> like like the, the army kind of yeah. took a hell of a lot of money, uh, or what's the what's the word where they not compensate, but they uh, events training sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So they they take a lot of the funds out of it, or yeah, cost out of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, they so, they uh, they will pay towards it, won't they? And you top yeah. it up. Yeah, I can't remember what the word is now. I can't, uh, we're the same. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I, I miss it, and if if one day I can get back into it, it'll be awesome. But uh, yeah, it's it's just great being weightless. And yeah, I mean, while this is all start going on, I'm still keeping fit. I'm still yeah riding the bike, but nowhere near. You're not. You're just riding the bike to enjoy it. You just you're not trying to sit at 200 watts for 20 minutes. You just I'm going to ride my bike yeah. or Just get enjoy, on Zwift. Or, enjoy Zwift. Yeah, yeah, enjoy Zwift. Or <laughs> when I was living in Wiltshire, I got on the roads a lot more because it, it was safer down here than where I am now. But um, yeah, just, I just, it's, I just, the way I see cycling now, even to this day now, it's just keeping fit. Yeah. It's not trying to be a superstar anymore. That ship sailed. I'm never going to beat guys with two arms unless I can sort this prosthetic out. Um, but I spent five years doing that and. Who's, who knows? Maybe in the future, but at the moment, I just yeah. I lost the bug for racing. So just doing it for yourself and yeah, enjoying, for myself enjoying now. the moment. Yeah, right? by doing that, it's allowed me, like I said, other things. So public speaking, working with Blesma, going into schools, talking to kids about resilience and overcoming adversity, casualty resources, going around the world, pretending to get blown up again for a living. Um, it's brilliant. Yeah, I know it sounds strange, but I really enjoy doing it because I feel like I'm giving back, diving, being a dad, coaching. Uh, this evening I've got to go and do some coaching this evening so yeah I just I like keeping myself busy and by giving the bike up full time it allowed me to do a lot more with my time nice well that's an awful lot yeah um, my my one question is how's mental health throughout all of that mental health because um, it's one thing that we don't talk too much about but yeah I know important. I mean there's a lot of it's the forefront of a lot of people's things now mental health wise um the amount of times you go into Headley Court and they make you fill in them forms. Are you okay. feeling okay? How was your mood today? Blah, blah, blah. 
honestly, filling them forms in once you want to get PTSD from them forms because you feel like you should have it. But I consider, like I said earlier, I consider myself lucky. I can remember the whole incident and the bits I couldn't remember, the blanks have been filled in for me. I know I didn't do anything wrong that day. It was just a, it was an accident. Most things are in life for accidents. Um, but I, I was lucky I had a good family and headed court for me. Being in a situation where you're learning how to walk at the same time as other people are learning how to walk and you're pushing each other. Um, I kept myself busy, I think, helped. Um, so luckily I didn't have any mental health issues. The only time I've ever had flashbacks is from the bike crash I had last year. Okay. Um, if I'm being honest, I was in Mallorca last September just doing a lap around the island with, with my wife and friends. Uh, and we climbed from Palenza, for those who've been to Mallorca, to the Pigmeor is the highest road on the island. So we've gone up there. I was knackered by the time I got up there. <laughs> but it's a 15-mile descent into Soler, and we were spending the night down there. So we've gone through the tunnel at the top, and I thought, I'm not going to push this. I'm just going to enjoy the descent. So I literally rolled the bike. And now when I was in descending Wolf Creek in America, I hit 60 miles an hour at one point. I was probably doing 25, 30 going down this hill. I've come around the left hairpin. This is near the top, and I've gone to go around the right. I've pulled my brakes on my bike, tapping them, and my front tire's blown on my bike. Now, your brakes on your handbike are all on the front wheel, so I had no other way of stopping. My cycling jersey's got black lines underneath where I've tried sticking my arms in the rear wheels to stop. Um, there's nothing stopping this bike. And as I blew, a truck came around the corner, and I've skidded into the wrong side of the road, and my front wheels hit the side skirts of the truck underneath it. And it's pushed me into the back wheel. And my left leg took the whole impact. Um, first time in my life I ever thought I was going to die. Genuinely just remember seeing the axle turning under the lorry. And go, I'm dead. Index. That's, that's what I thought. Genuinely, I'm dead. And then the next thing I know, I'm, I'm on the other side of the road looking up at the sky, lying on my back. My arm's still connected to the bike. Prosthetic won't stay on when I'm racing, but when you uh. crash the bike, it will stay on. <laughs> um, and I... I was alive. I was like, I'm alive. And I went in straight into full on, right, I can move my neck. Well, I've not broke my arm. My other arm, seemed, well, it was connected, but I could move it. And I lifted my right leg up. I was like, that's all right. And I went to lift my left leg up and nothing happened. So I remember grabbing it, lifting it up, and it was just blood squirting out the end. It was all a mess. The end of my femur had taken the whole impact and literally crushed the end of my leg. Um, fortunately, I had a carbon fiber socket on the bike over my leg. And that pretty much, from what a friend of mine behind me said, um, that pretty much saved my leg. I reckon it was just rip, ripped off. But, yeah, I, I just shouted straight away, tourniquet, tourniquet. And my friend, two friends literally just jumped on me. One of them took his cycling jersey off and just started tying it around my legs. Like, for, for, Thankfully, they're both ex-military. So tying it around my leg. Um, people are stopping. The locals are stopping traffic. Um, yeah, I was honestly on the ground, fearing for my life. I knew I was in a, in a... In Afghanistan, when you're on the deck, you know there's a helicopter coming for you. You've got a trained medic around you. you. You're in a safe place. As long as they can get you back. I was on the top of a mountain in Mallorca, not knowing what was going on. I should be dead. I should be dead. Um, and I kept feeling myself dropping in and out while I was up there. And David and Alan, who were with me, were just, come on, mate, stay with me. One of them put my leg underneath my helmet. Uh, there was an old man in a car just came and got a sheet out and just held it up above me to keep the sign off to keep the sun off my head um, and a British doctor cycle pass stopped 
got out, give me some proofing. Just that placebo effect of having some painkillers made it not hurt as much. I mean, the first 20 minutes was like being blown up, no pain whatsoever. Okay. Second 20, 40 minutes for the ambulance, I was in the last 20 minutes, just, just pure pain, agony, like a throbbing agony. Um, and the worst bit was you could hear the ambulance 10 minutes before it got to us because oh. it was at the bottom of the hill and you're at the top. You can hear it winding its way up. Um, and Anna had already descended, so I was worried about her as well. Uh, and Jensen, would I ever see him again? Honestly, I I didn't know. It, it's proper touch and go. Um, I remember when the ambulance got there, you sort of you felt safer because you knew there were proper paramedics there. Um, but yeah, they got out. And from what David, who was with me, said, they jumped out, looked at me, and they they were ready to start running in the bushes to look for limbs, if you know what I mean. Because uh, what is going on here? This isn't a normal bike crash. Yeah. Uh, but he's like, no, no, no. Afghanistan bomb in his best Spanish, uh, which isn't Spanish at all. <laughs> but um, yeah, they were there, and they got some pain meds into me straight away, and I started nodding. Um, I remember getting to the hospital, chucked me an MRI scanner, and yeah, that was it. I was out then, straight in surgery, where they literally amputated the end six inches off my le- left no, leg. Another stump. six inches. Off. Another six. The bone was so badly broken; it was just pieces. It was shattered, completely shattered. Um, so yeah, they took it off, um, and then from what Anna said, she saw me in the hospital that night. And she didn't think she'd ever see me again. I was in that deep dark place. But the next morning, I woke up and I was texting her. It was the meds had obviously worked overnight. They brought me back to a sort of conscious state. And then the day after that, they got me in for surgery where they pinned my so the my neck of femur and my femur is completely sheared. Right. Where the impact had taken it. Fortunately, my I'd lent just right before I'd hit the lorry, apparently. Um, and that opened my hip up, which saved my hip. Uh so they pulled my femur down and bolted it back to my neck of femur. Um so yeah, a bit, quite a bit of damage, but um, yeah, I spent five days in intensive care, and they went, "You can go home. Really? Give us your flight number, and we'll get you home." Um, but it turned out the insurance company in the hospital weren't really talking to each other. I ended up spending nearly another week in Spain, and by that point, I contracted sepsis. Um, by the time I did get, I did get home, um, which is the week after they said you could go home. I was in surgery and I pretty much died on the operating table. And thankfully, Miss Crick, who's at Salisbury, um, Salisbury Hospital, she got me back round, and I'm still here. I would not be here without that woman. She is amazing. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I spent 10 weeks in hospital, operations every three days to clean it out. And, yeah, I mean, the pictures I've seen of it, when she opened my leg up when I got back to Salisbury, it all just fell to bits. Um, she had to take a further couple of centimetres off the bone because that had, sepsis had got into the bone. Um, so, yeah, not the best. Honestly, I just thought, easy descent into Sola. Next thing you know, you're fighting for your life. It just shows you that accidents happen. Anything can happen. And again, you go through your thought process afterwards of what could I have done differently? I didn't do anything wrong. It was just an accident. Yeah, These things happen. Yeah. You can crash a car. Um, but back on the mental health thing, it was after leaving hospital, I, I, I was having sort of, not flashback, but just before going to sleep every night, I just kept dreaming about going into the side of a truck. Um, but fortunately, I just just talking to people. I told Anna about it, um, and I spoke to um, I spoke to other people about it, and now it's all back to normal. 
it's all stopped since I started riding my bike again. Has it? Okay. So, um, I mean, the pain after this, this has been a lot worse than getting blown up, um, pain wise, recovery time wise, uh, because this is completely different. Um, it's just, I think all of that added to the fact that I was on my own. I wasn't at Headley Court. I wasn't surrounded by people in the same situation as me. I was having to do this myself. Yeah. Um, I didn't have the support of seeing a physio every day or an OT or an ERI. I was literally in my own front room doing stretches that I remember from Headley Court. Um, so, yeah, thankfully, I've, I've, I'm up walking again on stubbies. Oh, you are? Uh, so I've, cool. Yeah, my hips, I went and saw my doctor two weeks ago and my hip, the, the bones healed properly. Nice. I need to have further surgery on it, but I can walk around on stubbies. Um, again, I've been in a wheelchair for nine months. I don't think that's help, helped mental health fever because you've gone from being really mobile and really active to stuck in a wheelchair again. Yeah. Well you mentioned earlier it's like having handcuffs. Yeah, having to ask for help to get something off the top shelf in a fridge and stuff like that. It, it breaks me having to ask for help because I'm quite an independent person. But do you know what? If you have to ask for help, stick your hand up and ask ask for help. Um stop being so stubborn. Yeah. <laughs> and and like you said, talking help. Yeah, talking so to talk. people. So <laughs> Like uh, um, again, talking to people and writ, I went through that whole thought process of like when I got blown up, I thought I'd done something wrong, but talking to people who were there and other people, it, it was just an accident. It's just a freak accident. I could nothing I could have done would have stopped that bike. If I'd have tried jumping off it, it might something might have hit me the other way, or if I'd have tried turning the cranks, the bike would have flipped and I'd have properly gone under the lorry. Yeah. You don't know. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, talking to people who were there and other people and it's just opening up. It, it it's helped me get past it. And so now I'm I'm just back to normal again. It's good. And you say you're back on the bike. Back on the bike, so I got the bike five weeks ago. I've not been on the road yet. I'll just keep in the garage on Zwift at the moment. That's um, fine. <laughs> no, I need to get new carbon fibre sockets made to go on the bike for my stumps, just to protect them a bit. Um uh, but do you know what? Zwift's brilliant. Just I was on the mountains today, I'm hanging this afternoon, my arms are screaming at me, but it's good. Nice, nice. Well, man, that's been uh, <laughs> it's been quite quite a ride. Ah, pleasure. Um, I suppose everything you've gone through with the military at this point in the podcast, is there anything you would say to somebody that's either joined the military or just about to leave to become a veteran? Any advice that you want to share at this last um, part? Any advice? I mean... Joining the military is a brilliant career. Whatever service you join, maybe not the RAF regiment, but that's a joke. <laughs> Sorry, I won't put that in there. Uh, but no, do you know what? It's a great way of seeing the world, literally. I mean, my brother was in for a while. He didn't deploy on an operational tour, but he went to Sierra Leone and helped with Ebola and things like that. And everyone has a different experience in the military. Um, and I'll, I'll reiterate, I don't miss the uniform. I don't miss the bullshit, but I just miss that sort of camaraderie you I've got friends in still now that are still in the military that will be my friends for life more than friends I had at school and things like that you you will never meet people like the people you meet in the military um when you've been in a situation where someone's got your back and you've got theirs and you're there for them you'll never you'll never forget that um so yeah, I'd, I'd I'd always recommend someone to join the military, whatever you join. 
if you join it's not for you it's not for you but try it um and leaving i actually know guys that have ended up signing back on because they miss it so much yeah um so yeah i mean if i still have my legs and stuff would i still be in who knows but that's life. You don't know what's going to happen. Don't know what's around the corner. Yeah, right? but if you are going to make a decision, commit to it. And if you commit to it, like I said earlier, you generally, generally, your quality of life goes on an upward trajectory because yeah. you you want to do something. If you commit to it, you will do it. Um, whereas if you go into something half-heartedly, you're more likely to fail. Um, but yeah, no, I'd, I'd always recommend someone to join the military. I, I had a great time. And would, do I regret joining? Not, not one bit. I often get asked that do you regret joining the army would you no because I consider my life even though everything I've been through all the experiences I've been in the last 10 years I'd never have done that if I hadn't have been injured my quality of life now is probably better than it was when I had my limbs um, would I trade it all back I'd love to have my legs and my arm back but they're not coming back so I can't answer that question I've just got to move on with life yeah and you've got plans and thoughts for the next few years um, stuff once we're out of this pandemic crap <laughs> pandemic yeah no i mean the pandemic's put a put a stop on the sort of operations i need i need to sort this leg out first and get okay. walking again properly um i just keep fizzing keep working and just yeah. keep keep myself busy i'm like i can't sit down for too long yeah i think i completed netflix during the uh, pandemic but uh <laughs> yeah but again it's just it's the card we've been dealt and we've got to deal with it yeah um we will we will we will all come out of it eventually. Um, yeah. And there's always someone worse off than you. That's the way you got to look at things. But in the future, I need to get back in the water. I need to get diving. Um, I spoke to a few mates that are up in the hills. Maybe one day get up there with them. But yeah, we'll see what happens. I'm not, nothing's set in stone. Train, eat, sleep, train, repeat. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, man. Pleasure. Thank you so, so much. Um, so thanks for sharing. Absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you for your time. Uh, yeah, yeah, fine. No, I've, I've enjoyed it. I've absolutely loved it. And and most importantly, thank you for your service. Oh, don't say that. I can't stand it when people say that. <laughs> well, I think, I think it's good because just that little thank. Yeah, no, thank you very much. No problem. This has been Military Veterans Podcast. Out. Hi, this is Gav. Thanks so much for listening to the end of this episode and uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. But uh, I would love to just give you the insight into being able to support the show through uh, Patreon. Uh, You can go to patreon.com forward slash military veterans podcast or you can follow the links on the website or even social media. And this way you can support monthly. Uh, There are a few tiers you can choose. Uh, They start at £3 a month and they go up If you were to support with £5 a month, you actually get a behind-the-scenes kind of recording, which is once the episode has been recorded with me and the veteran, then uh, we do a little bit of a chin wag, and uh, that's actually actually quite fun. So it'd be awesome if you could maybe have a listen to some of those uh, just by supporting uh, with £5 a month. But either way, uh, please uh, share the show with, with a friend or someone you know that might enjoy it. Uh, And also remember, there is the video part as well, 
which is over on YouTube. So thanks very much for anything that you've done with supporting or listening and uh, take care. Bye-bye.